0: Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Knock This audiobook version is prepared by Jock Coates of Oxford, United Kingdom. Other work by Jock can be found at jockcoates.me The text of Our Enemy, the State is available either to purchase or to download at mises.org by searching for Our Enemy, the State. In memoriam, Edmund Cadwallader Evans, a sound economist, one of the few who understand the nature of the state, 1935. Be it or be it not true that man is shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin, it is unquestionably true that government is begotten of aggression and by aggression. Herbert Spencer, 1850. This is the gravest danger that today threatens civilization. State intervention, the absorption of all spontaneous social effort by the state. That is to say, of spontaneous historical action, which in the long run sustains, nourishes, and impels human destinies. José Ortega y Gasset, 1922 The state has taken on a vast mass of new duties and responsibilities. It has spread out its powers until they penetrate to every act of the citizen, however secret. It has begun to throw around its operations the high dignity and impeccability of a state religion. Its agents become a separate and superior caste with authority to bind and loose, and their thumbs in every pot. But it still remains, as it was in the beginning, the common enemy of all well-disposed, industrious, and decent men. Henry L. Mencken, 1926 Preface to the Second Edition When Our Enemy the State appeared in 1935, its literary merit rather than its philosophic content attracted attention to it. The times were not ripe for an acceptance of its predictions, still less for the argument on which these predictions were based. Faith in traditional frontier individualism had not yet been shaken by the course of events. Against this faith, the argument that the same economic forces which in all times and in all nations drive towards the ascendancy of political power at the expense of social power were in operation here made little headway. That is, the feeling that it cannot happen here was too difficult a hurdle for the book to overcome. By the time the first edition had run out, the development of public affairs gave the argument of the book ample testimony. In less than a decade, it was evident to many Americans that their country is not immune from the philosophy which had captured European thinking. The times were proving Mr. Knox's thesis, and by irresistible word-of-mouth advertising, a demand for the book began to manifest itself just when it was no longer available, and the plates had been put to war purposes. In 1943 he had a second edition in mind. I talked with him several times about it, urging him to elaborate on the economic ideas, since these, it seemed to me, were inadequately developed for the reader with a limited knowledge of political economy. He agreed that this ought to be done, but in a separate book or in a second part of this book, and suggested that I try my hand at it. Nothing came of the matter because of the war. He died on August nineteenth, nineteen 1945. This volume is an exact duplication of the first edition. He intended to make some slight changes, principally, as he told me, in the substitution of current illustrations for those which might carry less weight with the younger reader. As for the sequel stressing economics, this will have to be done. At any rate, our enemy, the state, needs no support. Frank Chodoroff, New York City, May 28th 1946 Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Nock Part 1 If we look beneath the surface of our public affairs, we can discern one fundamental fact, namely, a great redistribution of power between society and the state. This is the fact that interests the student of civilization. He has only a secondary or derived interest in matters like price-fixing, wage-fixing, inflation, political banking, agricultural adjustment, and similar items of state policy that fill the pages of newspapers and the mouths of publicists and politicians. All these can be run up under one head. They have an immediate and temporary importance, and for this reason they monopolize public attention, but they all come to the same thing which is, an increase of state power and a corresponding decrease of social power. It is unfortunately none too well understood that, just as the state has no money of its own, so it has no power of its own. All the power it has is what society gives it, plus what it confiscates from time to time on one pretext or another. There is no other source from which state power can be drawn. Therefore, every assumption of state power, whether by gift or seizure, leaves society with so much less power. There is never, nor can there be, any strengthening of state power without a corresponding and roughly equivalent depletion of social power. Moreover, it follows that with any exercise of state power, not only the exercise of social power in the same direction, but the disposition to exercise it in that direction tends to dwindle. Mayor Gaynor astonished the whole of New York when he pointed out to a correspondent who had been complaining about the inefficiency of the police that any citizen has the right to arrest a malefactor and bring him before a magistrate. The law of England and of this country, he wrote, has been very careful to confer no more right in that respect upon policemen and constables than it confers on every citizen. State exercise of that right through a police force had gone on so steadily that not only were citizens indisposed to exercise it, but probably not one in ten thousand knew he had it. Heretofore in this country, sudden crises of misfortune have been met by a mobilization of social power. In fact, except for certain institutional enterprises like the Home for the Aged, the Lunatic Asylum, City Hospital and County Poorhouse, destitution, unemployment, depression and similar ills have been no concern of the state, but have been relieved by the application of social power. Under Mr. Roosevelt, however, the state assumed this function, publicly announcing the doctrine, brand new in our history, that the state owes its citizens a living. Students of politics, of course, saw in this merely an astute proposal for a prodigious enhancement of state power. Merely what, as long ago as 1794, James Madison called the old trick of turning every contingency into a resource for accumulating force in the government. And the passage of time has proved that they were right. The effect of this upon the balance between state power and social power is clear, and also its effect of a general indoctrination with the idea that an exercise of social power upon such matters is no longer called for. It is largely in this way that the progressive conversion of social power into state power becomes acceptable and gets itself accepted. When the Johnstown Flood occurred, social power was immediately mobilized and applied with intelligence and vigor. Its abundance, measured by money alone, was so great that when everything was finally put in order, something like a million dollars remained. If such a catastrophe happens now, not only is social power perhaps too depleted for like exercise, but the general instinct would be to let the state see to it. Not only has social power atrophied to that extent, but the disposition to exercise it in that particular direction has atrophied with it. If the state has made such matters its business and has confiscated the social power necessary to deal with them, why? let it deal with them we can get some kind of rough measure of this general atrophy by our own disposition when approached by a beggar two years ago we might have been moved to give him something today we are moved to refer him to the state's relief agency the state has said to society you are either not exercising enough power to meet the emergency or are exercising it in what I think is an incompetent way. So I shall confiscate your power and exercise it to suit myself. Hence, when the beggar asks us for a quarter, our instinct is to say that the state has already confiscated our quarter for his benefit, and he should go to the state about it. Every positive intervention that the state makes upon industry and commerce has a similar effect. When the state intervenes to fix wages or prices, or to prescribe the conditions of competition, it virtually tells the enterpriser that he is not exercising social power in the right way, and therefore it proposes to confiscate his power and exercise it according to the state's own judgment of what is best. Hence the enterpriser's instinct is to let the state look after the consequences. As a simple illustration of this, a manufacturer of a highly specialised type of textiles was saying to me the other day that he had kept his mill going at a loss for five years because he did not want to turn his work people on the street in such hard times. But now that the state has stepped in to tell him how he must run his business, the state might jolly well take the responsibility. The process of converting social power into state power may perhaps be seen at its simplest in cases where the state's intervention is directly competitive. The accumulation of state power in various countries has been so accelerated and diversified within the last 20 years that we now see the state functioning as telegraphist, telephonist, match peddler, radio operator, cannon founder, railway builder and owner, railway operator, wholesale and retail tobacconist, shipbuilder and owner, chief chemist, harbour maker and dock builder, house builder, chief educator, newspaper proprietor, food purveyor, dealer insurance and so on through a long list. It is obvious that private forms of these enterprises must tend to dwindle in proportion as the energy of the state's encroachment on them increases for the competition of social power with state power is always disadvantaged, since the state can arrange the terms of competition to suit itself, even to the point of outlawing any exercise of social power whatever in the premises, in other words, giving itself a monopoly. Instances of this expedient are common. The one we are probably most acquainted with is the state's monopoly of letter-carrying, Social power is stopped by sheer fiat from application to this form of enterprise, notwithstanding it could carry on far cheaper, and in this country at least, far better. The advantages of this monopoly in promoting the state's interests are peculiar. No other, probably, could secure so large and well-distributed a volume of patronage under the guise of a public service in constant use by so large a number of people it plants a lieutenant of the state at every country crossroad. It is by no means a pure coincidence that an administration's chief almoner and whip at large is so regularly appointed postmaster-general. Thus, the state turns every contingency into a resource for accumulating power in itself, always at the expense of social power. And with this, it develops a habit of acquiescence in the people. New generations appear, each temperamentally adjusted, or as I believe our American glossary now has it, conditioned, to new increments of state power, and they tend to take the process of continuous accumulation as quite in order. All the state's institutional voices unite in confirming this tendency, they unite in exhibiting the progressive conversion of social power into state power as something not only quite in order, but even as wholesome and necessary for the public good. 2. In the United States at the present time, the principal indexes of the increase of state power are three in number. First, the point to which the centralization of state authority has been carried... Practically all the sovereign rights and powers of the smaller political units, all of them that are significant enough to be worth absorbing, have been absorbed by the federal unit. Nor is this all. State power has not only been thus concentrated at Washington, but it has been so far concentrated into the hands of the executive that the existing regime is a regime of personal government. It is nominally republican, but actually monocratic a curious anomaly but highly characteristic of a people little gifted with intellectual integrity. Personal government is not exercised here in the same ways as in Italy, Russia or Germany, for there is as yet no state interest to be served by so doing, but rather the contrary, while in those countries there is. But personal government is always personal government. The mode of its exercise is a matter of immediate political expediency and is determined entirely by circumstances. This regime was established by a coup d'état of a new and unusual kind, practicable only in a rich country. It was effected not by violence like Louis Napoleon's or by terrorism like Mussolini's, but by purchase. It therefore presents what might be called an American variant of the coup d'etat. Our national legislature was not suppressed by force of arms like the French Assembly in 1851, but was brought out of its functions with public money. And as appeared most conspicuously in the elections of November 1934, the consolidation of the coup d'etat was effected by the same means the corresponding functions in the smaller units were reduced under the personal control of the executive. This is a most remarkable phenomenon, possibly nothing quite like it ever took place, and its character and implications deserve the most careful attention. A second index is supplied by the prodigious extension of the bureaucratic principle that is now observable. This is attested prima facie by the number of new boards, bureaux, and commissioners set up at Washington in the last two years. They are reported as representing something like 90,000 new employees appointed outside the civil service, and the total of the federal payroll in Washington is reported as something over $3 million per month. This however is relatively a small matter. The pressure of centralization has tended powerfully to convert every official and every political aspirant in the smaller units into a venal and complacent agency of the federal bureaucracy. This presents an interesting parallel with the state of things prevailing in the Roman Empire in the last days of the Flavian dynasty and afterwards. The rights and practices of local self-government which were formerly very considerable in the provinces and much more so in the municipalities, were lost by surrender rather than suppression. The imperial bureaucracy, which up to the second century was comparatively a modest affair, grew rapidly to great size and local politicians were quick to see the advantage of being on terms with it they came to Rome with their hats in their hands as governors, congressional aspirants and such like now go to Washington. Their eyes and thoughts were constantly fixed on Rome because recognition and preferment lay that way. And in their incorrigible sycophancy they became, as Plutarch says, like hypochondriacs who dare not eat or take a bath without consulting their physician. A third index is seen in the erection of poverty and mendicancy into a permanent political asset. Two years ago many of our people were in hard straits, to some extent no doubt through no fault of their own, though it is now clear that in the popular view of their case, as well as in the political view, the line between the deserving poor and the undeserving poor was not distinctly drawn. Popular feeling ran high at the time, and the prevailing wretchedness was regarded with undiscriminating emotion as evidence of some general wrong done upon its victims by society at large, rather than as the natural penalty of greed, folly, or actual misdoings, which in large part it was. The state, always instinctively turning every contingency into a resource, for accelerating the conversion of social power into state power was quick to take advantage of this state of mind. All that was needed to organize these unfortunates into an invaluable political property was to declare the doctrine that the state owes all its citizens living. And this was accordingly done. It immediately precipitated an enormous mass of subsidized voting power an enormous resource for strengthening the state at the expense of society. 3. There is an impression that the enhancement of state power, which has taken place since 1932, is provisional and temporary, that the corresponding depletion of social power is by way of a kind of emergency loan, and therefore is not to be scrutinized too closely there is every probability that this belief is devoid of foundation. No doubt our present regime will be modified in one way and another. Indeed, it must be, for the process of consolidation itself requires it. But any essential change would be quite unhistorical, quite without precedent, and is therefore most unlikely. And by an essential change, I mean one that will tend to redistribute actual power between the state and society. In the nature of things, there is no reason why such a change should take place, and every reason why it should not. We shall see various apparent recessions, apparent compromises, but the one thing we may be quite sure of is that none of these will tend to diminish actual state power. For example, we shall no doubt shortly see the great pressure group of politically organized poverty and mendicancy subsidized indirectly instead of directly, because the state interest cannot long keep pace with the hand-over-head disposition of the masses to loot their own treasury. The method of direct subsidy, or sheer cash purchase, will therefore in all probability give way to the indirect method of what is called social legislation that is, a multiplex system of state-managed pensions, insurance, and indemnities of various kinds. This is an apparent recession, and when it occurs it will no doubt be proclaimed as an actual recession, no doubt accepted as such, but is it? Does it actually tend to diminish state power and increase social power? Obviously not, but quite the opposite. It tends to consolidate firmly this particular fraction of state power, and opens the way to getting an indefinite increment upon it by the mere continuous invention of new courses and developments of state-administered social legislation, which is an extremely simple business. One may add the observation, for whatever its evidential value may be worth, that if the effect of progressive social legislation upon the sum total of state power were unfavourable or even nil, we should hardly have found Prince de Bismarck and the British liberal politicians of forty years ago going in for anything remotely resembling it. When, therefore, the inquiring student of civilisation has occasion to observe this or any other apparent recession upon any point of our present regime, he may content himself with asking the one question, what effect has this upon the sum total of state power? The answer he gives himself will show conclusively whether the recession is actual or apparent, and this is all he is concerned to know. There is also an impression that if actual recessions do not come about by themselves, they may be brought about by the expedient of voting one party out and another one in. This idea rests upon certain assumptions that experience has shown to be unsound, the first one being that the power of the ballot is what Republican political theory makes it out to be, and that therefore the electorate has an effective choice in the matter. It is a matter of open and notorious fact that nothing like this is true. Our nominally Republican system is actually built on an imperial model, with our professional politicians standing in the place of the Praetorian Guards. They meet from time to time, decide what can be got away with, and how and who is to do it, and the electorate votes according to their prescriptions. Under these conditions, it is easy to provide the appearance of any desired concession of state power without the reality. Our history shows innumerable instances of very easy dealing with problems in practical politics much more difficult than that. One may remark that in this connection also the notoriously baseless assumption that party designations connote principles, and that party pledges imply performance. Moreover, underlying these assumptions, and all others that faith in political action contemplates, is the assumption that the interests of the state and the interests of society are, at least theoretical, identical whereas in theory they are directly opposed, and this opposition invariably declares itself in practice to the precise extent that circumstances permit. However, without pursuing these matters further at the moment, it is probably enough to observe here that in the nature of things the exercise of personal government, the control of a huge and growing bureaucracy, and the management of an enormous mass of subsidized voting power are as agreeable to one stripe of politicians as they are to another. Presumably they interest a republican or a progressive as much as they do a democrat, communist, farmer, laborite, socialist, or whatever a politician may, for electioneering purposes, see fit to call himself. This was demonstrated in the local campaigns of 1934 by the practical attitude of politicians who represented nominal opposing parties. It is now being further demonstrated by the desirable haste that the leaders of the official opposition are making towards what they call reorganization of their party. One may well be inattentive to their words. Their actions, however, mean simply that the recent accretions of state power are here to stay, and that they are aware of it, and that, such being the case, they are preparing to dispose themselves most advantageously in a contest for their control and management. This is all that reorganization of the Republican Party means and all it is meant to mean. And this is in itself quite enough to show that any expectations of an essential change of regime through a change of party administration is illusory. On the contrary, it is quite clear that whatever party competition we shall see hereafter will be on the same terms as heretofore. It will be a competition for control and management, and it would naturally issue in still closer centralization, still further extension of the bureaucratic principle, and still larger concessions to subsidized voting power. This course would be strictly historical, and is furthermore to be expected as lying in the nature of things, as it so obviously does. Indeed, it is by this means that the aim of the collectivists seems likeliest to be attained in this country, this aim being the complete extinction of social power through absorption by the state. Their fundamental doctrine was formulated and invested with a quasi-religious sanction by the idealist philosophers of the last century, and among people who have accepted it in terms as well as in fact, it is expressed in formulas almost identical with theirs. Thus, for example, when Hitler says that the state dominates the nation because it alone represents it, he is only putting into loose popular language the formula of Hegel, that the state is the general substance whereof individuals are but accidents. Or again, when Mussolini says, everything for the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state, he is merely vulgarizing the doctrine of Fichte that the state is the superior power, ultimate and beyond appeal, absolutely independent. It may be in place to remark here the essential identity of the various extant forms of collectivism. The superficial distinctions of fascism, Bolshevism, Hitlerism are the concern of journalists and publicists. The serious student sees in them only the one root idea of a complete conversion of social power into state power. When Hitler and Mussolini invoke a kind of debased and hoodwinking mysticism to aid their acceleration of this process, the student at once recognizes his old friend, the formula of Hegel, that the state incarnates the divine idea upon earth and he is not hoodwinked. The journalist and impressionable traveler may make all they will of the new religion of Bolshevism. The student contents himself with remarking clearly the exact nature of the process which this inculcation is designed to sanction. 4. This process The conversion of social power into state power has not been carried as far here as it has elsewhere, as it has in Russia, Italy or Germany perhaps. Two things, however, are to be observed. First, that it has gone a long way, at a rate of progress that has of late been greatly accelerated. What has chiefly differentiated its progress here from its progress in other countries is its unspectacular character, Mr. Jefferson wrote in 1823 that there was no danger he dreaded so much as the consolidation of our government by the noiseless and therefore unalarming instrumentality of this Supreme Court. These words characterize every advance that we have made in state aggrandizement. Each one has been noiseless and therefore unalarming, especially to a people notoriously preoccupied, inattentive and incurious. Even the coup d'etat of 1932 was noiseless and unalarming. In Russia, Italy, Germany, the coup d'etat was violent and spectacular. It had to be, but here it was neither. Under covers of a nationwide, state-managed mobilization of inane buffoonery and aimless commotion, it took place in so unspectacular a way that it is true nature escaped notice, and even now is not generally understood. The method of consolidating the ensuing regime, moreover, was also noiseless and unalarming. It was merely the prosaic and unspectacular higgling of the market, to which a long and uniform political experience have accustomed us. A visitor from a poorer and thriftier country might have regarded Mr. Farley's activities in the local campaigns of 1934 as striking or even spectacular, but they made no such impression on us. They seemed so familiar, so much the regular thing, that one heard little comment on them. Moreover, political habit led us to attribute whatever unfavourable comment we did hear to interest, either partisan or monetary interest or both. We put it down to the jaundiced judgement of persons with axes to grind, and naturally the regime did all it could to encourage this view. The second thing to be observed is that certain formulas, certain arrangements of words stand as an obstacle in the way of our perceiving how far the conversion of social power into state power has actually gone. The force of phrase and name distorts the identification of our own actual acceptances and acquiescences. We are accustomed to the rehearsal of certain poetic litanies and provided their cadence be kept entire, we are indifferent to their correspondence with truth and fact. When Hegel's doctrine of the state, for example, is restated in terms by Hitler and Mussolini, it is distinctly offensive to us, and we congratulate ourselves in our freedom from the yoke of a dictator's tyranny. No American politician would dream of breaking in our routine of litanies with anything of the kind. We may imagine, for example, the shock to popular sentiment that would ensue upon Mr. Roosevelt's declaring publicly that the state embraces everything and nothing has value outside the state. The state creates right. Yet an American politician, as long as he does not formulate that doctrine in set terms, may go further with it in a practical way than Mussolini has gone, and without trouble or question. Suppose Mr. Roosevelt should defend his regime by publicly reasserting Hegel's dictum that the state alone possesses rights because it is the strongest. One can hardly imagine that our public would get that down without a great deal of retching. Yet how far, really, is that doctrine alien to our public's actual acquiescences? Surely not far. The point is that in respect of the relation between the theory and the actual practice of public affairs, the American is the most unphilosophical of beings. The rationalization of conduct in general is most repugnant to him. He prefers to emotionalize it. He is indifferent to the theory of things, so long as he may rehearse his formulas, and so long as he can listen to the patter of his litanies, no practical inconsistency disturbs him. Indeed he gives no evidence of even recognizing it as an inconsistency. The ablest and most acute observer among the many who came from Europe to look us over in the early part of the last century was the one who is for some reason the most neglected, notwithstanding that in our present circumstances especially he is worth more to us than all the de Tocquevilles, Bryce's, Trollops and Chateaubriand's put together. This was the noted Sam Simonian and political economist Michel Chevalier. Professor Chinard, in his admiral biographical study of John Adams, has called attention to Chevalier's observation that the American people have the morale of an army on the march. The more one thinks of this, the more clearly one sees how little there is in what our publicists are fond of calling the American psychology, that it does not exactly account for and it exactly accounts for the trait we are considering. An army on the march has no philosophy. It views itself as a creature of the moment. It does not rationalize conduct except in terms of an immediate end. As Tennyson observed, there is pretty strict official understanding against it doing so. Theirs is not to reason why emotionalizing conduct is another matter, and the more of it, the better. It is encouraged by a whole elaborate paraphernalia of showy etiquette, flags, music, uniforms, decorations, and the careful cultivation of a very special sort of camaraderie. In every relation to the reason of the thing, however, in the ability and eagerness, as Plato puts it, to see things as they are, The mentality of an army on the march is merely so much delayed adolescence. It remains persistently, incorrigibly, and notoriously infantile. Past generations of Americans, as Martin Chuzzlewit left record, erected this infantilism into a distinguishing virtue, and they took great pride in it as a mark of a chosen people destined to live forever amongst the glory of their own unparalleled achievements we got in Frankreich. Mr. Jefferson Brick, General Choke, and the Honorable Elijah Program made a first-class job of indoctrinating their countrymen with the idea that a philosophy is wholly unnecessary, and that a concern with the theory of things is effeminate and unbecoming. An envious and presumably dissolute Frenchman may say what he likes about the morale of an army on the march, but the fact remains that it has brought us where we are, and has got us what we have. Look at a continent subdued. See the spread of our industry and commerce, our railways, newspapers, finance companies, schools, colleges, what you will. Well, if all this has been done without a philosophy, if we have grown to this unrivalled greatness without any attention to the theory of things, does it not show that philosophy and the theory of things are all moonshine and not worth a practical people's consideration? The morale of an army on the march is good enough for us, and we are proud of it. The present generation does not speak in quite this tone of robust certitude. It seems, if anything, rather less openly contemptuous of philosophy. One even sees some signs of a suspicion that in our present circumstances the theory of things might be worth looking into and it is especially towards the theory of sovereignty and rulership that this new attitude of hospitality appears to be developing. The condition of public affairs in all countries, notably our own, has done more than bring under review the mere current practice of politics, the character and quality of representative politicians, and the relative merits of this or that form or mode of government. It has served to suggest attention to the one institution Whereof all those forms or modes are but the several, and from the theoretical point of view, indifferent manifestations. It suggests that finality does not lie with consideration of species, but of genus. It does not lie with the consideration of the characteristic marks that differentiate the republican state, monocratic state, constitutional, collectivist, totalitarian, in Bolshevist, what you will. It lies with the consideration of the state itself. 5. There appears to be a curious difficulty about exercising reflective thought upon the actual nature of an institution into which one was born and one's ancestors were born. One accepts it as one does the atmosphere. One's practical adjustments to it are made by a kind of reflex, One seldom thinks about the air until one notices some change, favorable or unfavorable, and then one's thought about it is special. One thinks about purer air, lighter air, heavier air, not about air. So it is with certain human institutions. We know that they exist, that they affect us in various ways, but we do not ask how they came about or what their original intention was, or what primary function it is they are actually fulfilling, and when they affect us so unfavorably that we rebel against them, we contemplate substituting nothing beyond some modification or variant of the same institution. Thus, colonial America oppressed by the monarchical state brings in the republican state. Germany gives us the republican state for the Hitlerian state. Russia exchanges the monocratic state for the collectivist state. Italy exchanges the constitutionalist state for the totalitarian state. It is interesting to observe that in the year 1935 the average individual's incurious attitude towards the phenomenon of the state is precisely what his attitude was toward the phenomenon of the church in the year, say, 1500. The state was then a very weak institution The church was very strong. The individual was born into the church as his ancestors had been for generations in precisely the formal documented fashion in which he is now born into the state. He was taxed for the church's support as he now is for the state's support. He was supposed to accept the official theory and doctrine of the church to conform to its discipline and in a general way to do as it told him again, precisely the sanctions that the state now lays upon him. If he were reluctant or recalcitrant, the church made a satisfactory amount of trouble for him as the state now does. Notwithstanding all this, it does not appear to have occurred to the church citizen of that day, any more than it occurs to the state citizen of the present, to ask what sort of institution it was that claimed his allegiance. There it was. He accepted its own account of itself, took it as it stood, and at its own valuation. Even when he revolted fifty years later, he merely exchanged one form or mode of the church for another, the Roman for the Calvinist, Lutheran, Zwinglian, or what not. Again, quite as the modern state citizen exchanges one mode of the state for another. He did not examine the institution itself, nor does the state citizen today. My purpose in writing is to raise the question whether the enormous depletion of social power which we are witnessing everywhere does not suggest the importance of knowing more than we do about the essential nature of the institution that is so rapidly absorbing this volume of power. One of my friends said to me lately that if the public utility corporations did not mend their ways the state would take over their business and operate it. He spoke with a curiously reverent air of finality. Just so, I thought, might a church citizen at the end of the 15th century have spoken of some impending intervention of the church, and I wondered then whether he had any better informed and closer reasoned theory of the state than his prototype had of the church. Frankly, I am sure he had not. His pseudo-conception was merely an unreasoned acceptance of the state on its own terms and at its own valuation. He showed himself no more intelligent, and no less, than the whole mass of state citizenry at large. It appears to me that with the depletion of social power going on at the rate it is, the state citizen should look very closely into the essential nature of the institution that is bringing it about. He should ask himself whether he has a theory of the state and, if so, whether he can assure himself that history supports it. He will not find this a matter that can be settled offhand. It needs a good deal of investigation and a stiff exercise of reflective thought. He should ask, in the first place, how the state originated and why. It must have come about somehow and for some purpose. That seems an extremely easy question to answer, But he will not find it so. Then he should ask what it is that history exhibits continuously as the state's primary function. Then, whether he finds that the state and government are strictly synonymous terms, he uses them as such, but are they? Are there any invariable characteristic marks that differentiate the institution of government from the institution of the state? Then, finally, he should decide whether, by the testimony of history, the state is to be regarded as, in essence, a social or an antisocial institution. It is pretty clear now that if the church citizen of 1500 had put his mind on questions as fundamental as these, his civilization might have had a much easier and pleasanter course to run, and the state citizen today may profit by his experience. Our Enemy, The State by Albert J. Nock Part 2 As far back as one can follow the run of civilization, it presents two fundamentally different types of political organization. This difference is not one of degree, but of kind. It does not do to take the one type as merely marking a lower order of civilization and the other a higher They are commonly so taken, but erroneously. Still less does it do to classify both as species of the same genus, to classify both under the generic term of government, though this also until very lately has been done and has always led to confusion and misunderstanding. A good understanding of this error and its effects is supplied by Thomas Paine. At the outset of his pamphlet called Common Sense pain draws a distinction between society and government while society in any state is a blessing he says government even in its best state is but a necessary evil in its worst state an intolerable one in another place he speaks of government as a mode rendered necessary by the inability of moral virtue to govern the world He proceeds then to show how and why government comes into being. Its origin is in the common understanding and common agreement of society and the design and end of government, he says, is freedom and security. Teleologically, government implements the common desire of society first for freedom and second for security. Beyond this it does not go it contemplates no positive intervention upon the individual, but only a negative intervention. It would seem that in Payne's view, the code of government should be that of the legendary King Pausol, who prescribed but two laws for his subject, the first being, Hurt no man, and the second, Then do as you please, and that the whole business of government should be the purely negative one of seeing that this code is carried out. So far, pain is sound as he is simple. He goes on, however, to attack the British political organization in terms that are logically inconclusive. There should be no complaint of this, for he was writing as a pamphleteer, a special pleader with an ad capitandum argument to make, and as everyone knows, he did it most successfully. Nevertheless, the point remains that when he talks about the British system, he is talking about a type of political organization essentially different from the type that he has just been describing, different in origin, in intention, in primary function, in the order of interest that it reflects. It did not originate in the common understanding and agreement of society, it originated in conquest and confiscation. Its intention, far from contemplating freedom and security, contemplated nothing of the kind. It contemplated primarily the continuous economic exploitation of one class by another, and it concerned itself with only so much freedom and security as was consistent with this primary intention, and this was, in fact, very little. Its primary function or exercise was not by way of pains purely negative interventions upon the individual but by way of innumerable and most onerous positive interventions, all of which were for the purpose of maintaining the stratification of society into an owning and exploiting class, and a property less dependent class. The order of interest that it reflected was not social, but purely antisocial, and those that administered it, judging by the common standards of ethics, or even the common standard of law as applied to private persons, were indistinguishable from a professional criminal class. Clearly, then, we have two distinct types of political organization to take into account, and clearly, too, when their origins are considered, it is impossible to make out that the one is a mere perversion of the other. Therefore, when we include both types under a general term like government, we get into logical difficulties difficulties of which most writers on the subject have been more or less vaguely aware, but which, until the last half-century, none of them has tried to resolve. Mr. Jefferson, for example, remarked that the hunting tribes of Indians, with which he had a good deal to do in his early days, had a highly organized and admirable social order, but were without government. Commenting on this, he wrote Madison that, it is a problem not clear in my mind that this condition is not the best, but he suspected that it was inconsistent with any degree of population. Schoolcraft observes that the Chippewast, though living in a highly organized social order, had no regular government. Herbert Spencer, speaking of the Bakunas, Araucanians, and Karana Hottentots, says they have no definite government while Parkman, in his introduction to the conspiracy of Pontiac, reports the same problem, and is frankly puzzled by its apparent anomalies. Payne's theory of government agrees exactly with the theory set forth by Mr. Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. The doctrine of natural rights, which is explicit in the Declaration, is implicit in common sense, and Payne's view of the design and end of government is precisely the Declaration's view that to secure these rights, governments are instituted amongst men. And further, Payne's view of the origin of government is that it derives its just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, if we apply Payne's formulas or the Declaration's formulas, it is abundantly clear that the Virginian Indians had government. Mr. Jefferson's own observations show that they had it. Their political organization, simple as it was, answers its purpose. Their code apparatus sufficed for assuring freedom and security to the individual and for dealing with such trespasses as in that state of society the individual might encounter fraud, theft, assault, adultery, murder. The same is clearly true of the various peoples cited by Parkman, Schoolcraft, and Spencer. Assuredly, if the language of the Declaration amounts to anything, all these peoples had government and all these reporters make it appear as a government quite competent to its purpose. Therefore, when Mr. Jefferson says his Indians were without government, he must be taken to mean that they did not have a type of government like the one he knew, and when Schoolcraft and Spencer speak of regular and definite government, their qualifying words must be taken in the same way. This type of government nevertheless has always existed and still exists answering perfectly to Payne's formulas and the Declaration's formulas, though it is a type which we also, most of us, have seldom had the chance to observe. It may not be put down as a mark of an inferior race, for institutional simplicity is in itself by no means a mark of backwardness or inferiority, and it has been sufficiently shown that in certain essential respects The peoples who have this type of government are, by comparison, in a position to say a good deal for themselves on the score of a civilized character. Mr. Jefferson's own testimony on this point is worth notice, and so is Parkman's. This type, however, even though documented by the Declaration, is fundamentally so different from the type that has always prevailed in history and is still prevailing in the world at the moment, that for the sake of clearness the two types should be set apart by name as they are by nature. They are so different in theory that drawing a sharp distinction between them is now probably the most important duty that civilization owes to its own safety. Hence it is by no means either arbitrary or academic proceeding to give the one type the name of government and to call the second type simply the state. 2. Aristotle, confusing the idea of the state with the idea of government, thought the state originated out of the natural grouping of the family. Other Greek philosophers, laboring under the same confusion, somewhat anticipated Rousseau in finding its origin in the social nature and disposition of the individual while an opposing school, which held that the individual is naturally antisocial, more or less anticipated Hobbes by finding in it in an enforced compromise among the antisocial tendencies of individuals. Another view, implicit in the doctrine of Adam Smith, is that the state originated in the association of certain individuals who showed a marked superiority in the economic virtues of diligence, prudence and thrift. The idealist philosophers, variously applying Kant's transcendentalism to the problem, came to still different conclusions, and one or two other views, rather less plausible perhaps than any of the foregoing, have been advanced. The root trouble with all these views is not precisely that they are conjectural, but that they are based on incompetent observation. They miss the invariable characteristic marks that the subject presents, as, for example, until quite lately, all views of the origin of malaria missed the invariable ministrations of the mosquito, or as opinions about the bubonic plague missed the invariable mark of the rat parasite. It is only within the last half century that the historical method has been applied to the problem of the state. This method runs back the phenomenon of the state to its first appearance in documented history, observing its characteristic marks and drawing inferences as indicated. There are so many clear intimations of this method in earlier writers, one finds them as far back as Strabo, that one wonders why its systematic application was not long deferred. But in all such cases, as with malaria and typhus, When the characteristic mark is once determined, it is so obvious that one always wonders why it was so long unnoticed. Perhaps in the case of the state, the best one can say is that the cooperation of the zeitgeist was necessary and that it could be had no sooner. The positive testimony of history is that the state invariably has its origin in conquest and confiscation. No primitive state known to history originated in any other manner. On the negative side, it has been proved beyond peradventure that no primitive state could possibly have had any other origin. Moreover, the sole invariable characteristic of the state is the economic exploitation of one class by another. In this sense, every state known to history is a class state. Oppenheimer defines the state in respect of its origin as an institution forced on a defeated group by a conquering group with a view only to systematizing the domination of the conquered by the conquerors and safeguarding itself against insurrection from within and attack from without. This domination had no other final purpose than the economic exploitation of the conquered group by the victorious group. An American statesman, John Jay, accomplished the respectable feat of compressing the whole doctrine of conquest into a single sentence. Nations in general, he said, will go to war whenever there is a prospect of getting something by it. Any considerable economic accumulation or any considerable body of natural resources is is an incentive to conquest. The primitive technique was that of raiding the coveted possessions appropriating them entire and either exterminating the possessors or depressing them beyond convenient reach very early however it was seen to be in general more profitable to reduce the possessors to dependence and use them as labor motors and the primitive technique was accordingly modified under special circumstances where this exploitation was either impractical or unprofitable the primitive technique is even now occasionally revived as by the Spaniards in South America or by ourselves against the Indians. But these circumstances are exceptional. The modified technique has been in use almost from the beginning and everywhere its first appearance marks the origin of the state. Citing rancors or observations on the technique of the raiding herdsman the Hiscos, who established their state of Egypt about 2000 BC, Gumplowitz remarks that Ranker's words very well sum up the political history of mankind. Indeed, the modified technique never varies. Everywhere we see a militant group of fierce men forcing the frontier of some more peaceable people, settling down upon them and establishing the state with themselves as an aristocracy. In Mesopotamia, eruption succeeds eruption, state succeeds state. Babylonians, Amoritans, Assyrians, Arabs, Medes, Persians, Macedonians, Parthians, Mongols, Seljuks, Tartars, Turks. In the Nile Valley, Hyksos, Nubians, Persians, Greeks, Romans, Arabs, Turks. In Greece, the Doric states are specific examples. In Italy, Romans, Ostrogoths, Rout Lombards, Franks, Germans. In Spain, Carthaginians, Visigoths, Arabs. In Gaul, Romans, Franks, Burgundians, Normans. In Britain, Saxons, Normans. Everywhere we find the political organization proceeding from the same origin and presenting the same mark of intention, namely the economic exploitation of a defeated group by a conquering group. Everywhere, that is, but with one significant exception. Wherever economic exploitation has for any reason either impractical or unprofitable, the state has never come into existence. Government has existed, but the state never. The American hunting tribes, for example, whose organization so puzzled our observers, never formed a state for there is no way to reduce a hunter to economic dependence and make him hunt for you. Conquest and confiscation were no doubt practicable, but no economic gain would be got by it, for confiscation would give the aggressors, but little beyond what they already had. The most that could come of it would be the satisfaction of some sort of feud. For like reasons, primitive peasants never formed a state. The economic accumulations of their neighbors were too slight and too perishable to be interesting, and especially with the abundance of free land about, the enslavement of their neighbors would be impracticable, if only for the police problems involved. It may now be easily seen how great the difference is between the institution of government, as understood by Paine and the Declaration of Independence, and the institution of the state. Government may quite conceivably have originated as Paine thought it did, or Aristotle, or Hobbes, or Rousseau, whereas the state not only never did originate in any of these ways, but never could have done so. The nature and intention of government, as adduced by Parkman, Schoolcraft, and Spencer, are social. Based on the idea of natural rights, government secures those rights to the individual by strictly negative intervention making justice costless and easy of access, and beyond that it does not go. The state, on the other hand, both in its genesis and by its primary intention, is purely antisocial. It is not based on the idea of natural rights, but on the idea that the individual has no rights except those that the state may provisionally grant him. It has always made justice costly and difficult of access and has invariably held itself above justice and common morality whenever it could advantage itself by so doing. So far from encouraging a wholesome development of social power, it has invariably, as Madison said, turned every contingency into a resource for depleting social power and enhancing state power. As Dr. Sigmund Freud has observed, It cannot even be said that the state has ever shown any disposition to suppress crime, but only to safeguard its own monopoly of crime. In Russia and Germany, for example, we have lately seen the state moving with great alacrity against infringement of its private monopoly by private persons, while at the same time exercising that monopoly with unconscionable ruthlessness taking the state wherever found striking into its history at any point one sees no way to differentiate the activities of its founders administrators and beneficiaries from those of a professional criminal class three such are the antecedents of the institution which is everywhere now so busily converting social power by wholesale into state power The recognition of them goes a long way towards resolving most, if not all, of the apparent anomalies which the conduct of the modern state exhibits. It is of great help, for example, in accounting for the open and notorious fact that the state always moves slowly and grudgingly towards any purpose that accrues to society's advantage, but moves rapidly and with alacrity towards one that accrues to its own advantage nor does it ever move towards social purposes on its own initiative, but only under heavy pressure while its motion towards antisocial purposes is self-sprung. Englishmen of the last century remarked this fact with justifiable anxiety as they watched the rapid depletion of social power by the British state. One of them was Herbert Spencer, who published a series of essays which were subsequently put together in a volume called the man versus the state. With our public affairs in the shape they are, it is rather remarkable that no American publicist has improved the chance to reproduce these essays verbatim, merely substituting illustrations drawn from American history for those which Spencer draws from English history. If this were properly done, it could make one of the most pertinent and useful works that could be produced at this time. These essays are devoted to examining the several aspects of the contemporary growth of the state power in England. On the essay called Over-Legislation, Spencer remarks the fact so notoriously common in our experience that when state power is applied to social purposes, its action is invariably slow, stupid, extravagant, unadaptive, corrupt, and obstructive. He devotes several paragraphs to each count assembling a complete array of proof. When he ends, discussion ends, there is simply nothing to be said. He shows further that the state does not even fulfill efficiently what he calls its unquestionable duties to society. It does not efficiently adjudge and defend the individual's elemental rights. This being so, and with us this too is a matter of notoriously common experience, Spencer sees no reason to expect that state power will be more efficiently applied to secondary social purposes. Had we, in short, proved its efficiency as judge and defender, instead of having found it treacherous, cruel, and anxiously to be shunned, there would be some encouragement to hope other benefits at its hands. Yet, he remarks, it is just this monstrously extravagant hope that society is continually indulging and indulging in the face of daily evidence that it is illusory. He points to the anomaly which we have all noticed so regularly presented by newspapers. Take up one, says Spencer, and you will probably find a leading editorial exposing the corruption, negligence, or mismanagement of some state department. Cast your eye down the next column, and it is not unlikely that you will read proposals for an extension of state supervision." Thus, while every day chronicles a failure, there every day there reappears the belief that it needs but an act of parliament and a staff of officers to effect any end desired. Nowhere is the perennial faith of mankind better seen. It is unnecessary to say that the reasons which Spencer gives for the antisocial behaviour of the state are abundantly valid but we may now see how powerfully they are reinforced by the findings of the historical method, a method which had not been applied when Spencer wrote. These findings being what they are, it is manifest that the conduct which Spencer complains of is strictly historical, and when town-dwelling merchants of the 18th century displaced the land-holding nobility in control of the state's mechanism, they did not change the state's character. They merely adapted its mechanism to their own special interests and strengthened it immeasurably. The merchant state remained an antisocial institution, a pure class state like the state of the nobility. Its intention and function remained unchanged, save for the adaptations necessary to suit the new order of interests that it was thenceforth to serve. Therefore, in its flagrant disservice of social purposes for which Spencer arraigns it, the state was acting strictly in character. Spencer does not discuss what he calls the perennial faith of mankind in state action, but contents himself with elaborating the sententious observations of Guizot that a belief in the sovereign power of political machinery is nothing less than a gross delusion this faith is cheaply an effect of the immense prestige with which the state has diligently built up for itself in the century or more since the doctrine of jure divino rulership gave way. We need not consider the various instruments that the state employs in building up its prestige. Most of them are well known and their use is well understood. There is one, however, which is in a sense peculiar to the republican state. Republicanism permits the individual to persuade himself that the state is his creation, that state action is his action, that when it expresses itself, it expresses him, and when it is glorified, he is glorified. The Republican state encourages this persuasion with all its power, aware that it is the most efficient instrument for enhancing its own prestige. Lincoln's phrase, of the people, by the people, for the people, was probably the most effective single-stroke of propaganda ever made on behalf of Republican state prestige. Thus the individual's sense of his own importance inclines him strongly to resent the suggestion that the state is by nature antisocial. He looks on its failures and misfeasances with somewhat the eye of a parent, giving it the benefit of a special code of ethics. Moreover, he has always the expectation that the state will learn by its mistakes and do better. Granting that its technique with social purposes is blundering, wasteful and vicious, even admitting with the public official whom Spencer cites that wherever the state is, there is villainy, he sees no reason why, with an increase of experience and responsibility, the state should not improve. Something like this appears to be the basic assumption of collectivism, but let the state confiscate all social power, and its interests will become identical with those of society. Granting that the state is of antisocial origin, and that it has borne a uniformly antisocial character throughout its history, let it but extinguish social power completely, and its character will change. It will merge with society and thereby become society's efficient and disinterested organ. The historic state, in short, will disappear and government only remain. It is an attractive idea. The hope of its being somehow translated into practice is what, only so few years ago, made the Russian experiment so irresistibly fascinating to generous spirits who felt themselves hopelessly state-ridden. A closer examination of the state's activities, however, will show that this idea, attractive though it be, goes to pieces against the iron law of fundamental economics, that man tends always to satisfy his needs and desires with the least possible exertion. Let us see how this is so. 4. There are two methods, or means, and only two, whereby man's needs and desires can be satisfied. One is the production and exchange of wealth. This is the economic means. The other is the uncompensated appropriation of wealth produced by others. This is the political means. The primitive exercise of the political means was, as we have seen, by conquest, confiscation, expropriation, and the introduction of a slave economy. The conqueror parcelled out the conquering territory among beneficiaries who thenceforth satisfied their needs and desires by exploiting the labor of the enslaved inhabitants. The feudal state and the merchant state, wherever found, merely took over and developed successively the heritage of character, intention and apparatus of exploitation which the primitive state transmitted to them. They are in essence merely higher integrations of the primitive state. The state then, whether primitive, feudal or merchant, is the organization of the political means. Now, since man tends always to satisfy his needs and desires with the least possible exertion, he will employ the political means whenever he can, exclusively if possible, otherwise in association with the economic means. He will, at the present time that is, have recourse to the state's modern apparatus of exploitation, the apparatus of tariffs, concessions, rent monopoly and the like, it is a matter of the commonest observation that this is his first instinct. So long, therefore, as the organization of the political means is available, so long as the highly centralized bureaucratic state stands as primarily a distributor of economic advantage, an arbiter of exploitation, so long that instinct effectively declare itself, A proletarian state would merely, like the merchant state, shift the incidence of exploitation, and there is no historic ground for the presumption that a collectivist state would be in any essential respect unlike its predecessors. As we are beginning to see, the Russian experiment has amounted to the erection of a highly centralized bureaucratic state upon the ruins of another, leaving the entire apparatus of exploitation intact and ready for use. Hence, in view of the law of fundamental economics just cited, the expectation that collectivism will appreciably alter the essential character of the state appears illusory. Thus, the findings arrived at by the historical method amply support the immense body of practical considerations brought forward by Spencer against the state's inroads upon social power. When Spencer concludes that in state organizations corruption is unavoidable, the historical method abundantly shows cause why, in the nature of things, this should be expected. Vilescit origine tali When Freud comments on the shocking disparity between state ethics and private ethics, and his observations on this point are most profound and searching, the historical method at once supplies the best of reasons why that disparity should be looked for. When Ortega y Gasset says that statism is the higher form taken by violence and direct action when these are set up as standards, the historical method enables us to perceive at once that his definition is precisely that which one would make a priori. The historical method, moreover, establishes the important fact that, as in the case of tabetic or parasitic diseases, the depletion of social power by the state cannot be checked after a certain point of progress is passed. History does not show an instance where, once beyond this point, this depletion has not ended in a complete and permanent collapse. In some cases, disintegration is slow and painful. Death set its mark on Rome at the end of the second century, but she dragged out a pitiable existence for some time after the Antonines. Athens, on the other hand, collapsed quickly. Some authorities think Europe is dangerously near that point, if not already past it. But contemporary conjecture is probably without much value. That point may have been reached in America, and it may not. Again, certainty is unattainable. Plausible arguments may be weighed either way. Of two things, however, we may be certain. The first is that the rate of America's approach to that point is being prodigiously accelerated, and the second is that there is no evidence of any disposition to retard it, or any intelligent apprehension of the danger which that acceleration betokens. Our Enemy, the State, by Albert J. Nock Part 3 In considering the state's development in America, it is important to keep in mind the fact that America's experience of the state was longer during the colonial period than during the period of American independence. The period 1607 to 1776 was longer than the period 1776 to 1935. Moreover, the colonists came here full-grown and had already a considerable experience of the state of England and Europe before they arrived, and for the purposes of comparison, this was extend the former period by a few years, say at least fifteen. It would probably be safe to put it that the American colonists had twenty-five years longer experience of the state than citizens of the United States have had. Their experience, too, was not only longer but more varied. The British state, the French, Dutch, Swedish and Spanish states were all established here. The separatist English dissenters who landed at Plymouth had lived under the Dutch state as well as the British state. When James I made England too uncomfortable for them to live in, they went to Holland and many of the institutions which they subsequently set up in New England and which were later incorporated into the general body of what we call American institutions were actually Dutch, though commonly, almost invariably, we credit them to England. They were for the most part Roman continental in their origin, but they were transmitted here from Holland, not from England. No such institutions existed in England at that time, and hence the Plymouth colonists could not have seen them there. They could have seen them only in Holland, where they did exist. Our colonial period coincided with the period of revolution and readjustment in England, referred to in the preceding chapter when the British merchant state was displacing the feudal state, consolidating its own position, and shifting the incidents of economic exploitation. These revolutionary measures gave rise to an extensive review of the general theory on which the feudal state had been operating. The earlier Stuarts governed on the theory of monarchy by divine right. The state's economic beneficiaries were answerable only to the monarch, who was theoretically answerable only to God. He had no responsibilities to society at large, save such as he chose to incur, and these only for the duration of his pleasure. In 1607, the year of the Virginia Colony's landing at Jamestown, John Cowell, Regius Professor of Civil Law at the University of Cambridge, laid down the doctrine that the monarch is above the law by his absolute power, and though for the better and equal course in making laws he do admit the three estates unto council, yet this in diverse learned men's opinions is not of constraint, but of his own benignity, or by reason of the promise he made upon oath at the time of his coronation. This doctrine, which was elaborated to the utmost in the extraordinary work called Patriarcha by Sir Robert Filmer, was all well enough so long as the line of society's stratification was clear, straight and easily drawn. The feudal states' economic beneficiaries were virtually a close corporation A compact body consisting of a church hierarchy and a titled group of hereditary large-holding landed proprietors. In respect of interests, this body was extremely homogeneous, and their interests, few in number, were simple in character and easily defined. With the monarch, the hierarchy and a small closely limited nobility above the line of stratification, and an undifferentiated populace below it, this theory of sovereignty was passable. It answered the purposes of the feudal state as well as any. But the practical outcome of this theory did not and could not suit the purposes of the rapidly growing class of merchants and financiers. They wished to introduce a new economic system. Under feudalism, production had been as a general thing for use with the incidence of exploitation falling largely on the peasantry. The state had by no means always kept its hands off trade, but it had never countenanced the idea that its chief reason for existence was, as we say, to help business. The merchants and financiers, however, had precisely this idea in mind. They saw the attractive possibilities of production for profit, with the incidence of exploitation gradually shifting to an industrial proletariat. They saw also, however, But to realize all these possibilities, they must get the state's mechanism to working as smoothly and powerfully on the side of business as it had been working on the side of the monarchy, the church, and the landholding landed proprietors. This meant capturing control of this mechanism, and so altering and adapting it as to give themselves the same free access to the political means as was enjoyed by the displaced beneficiaries. The course by which they accomplished this is marked by the Civil War, the dethronement and execution of Charles I, the Puritan Protectorate, and the Revolution of 1688. This is the actual inwardness of what is known as the Puritan movement in England. It had a quasi-religious motivation, speaking strictly an ecclesiological motivation. But the paramount practical end towards which it tended was a repartition of access to the political means. It is a significant fact, though seldom noticed, that the only tenet with which Puritanism managed to evangelize equally the non-Christian and Christian world of English-bred civilization is its tenet of work, its doctrine that work is, by God's express will and command, a duty, indeed almost, if not quite, the first and most important of man's secular duties. This erection of labor into a Christian virtue per se, this investment of work with a special religious sanction, was an invention of Puritanism. It was something never heard of in England before the rise of the Puritan state. The only doctrine antedating it presented labor as the means to a purely secular end. As Cranmer's Divines put it, that I may learn and labor truly to get mine own living, There is no hint that God would take it amiss if one preferred to do little work and put up with a poor living for the sake of doing something else with one's time. Perhaps the best witness to the essential character of the Puritan movement in England and America is the thoroughness with which its doctrine of work has pervaded both literatures all the way from Cromwell's letters to Carlyle's panegyric and Longfellow's verse. But the merchant state of the Puritans was like any other, it followed the standard pattern. It originated in conquest and confiscation, like the feudal state which it displaced, the only difference being that its conquest was by civil war instead of foreign war. Its object was the economic exploitation of one class by another, for the exploitation of feudal serfs by a nobility it proposed only to substitute the exploitation of a proletariat by enterprises. Like its predecessors, the merchant state was purely an organization of the political means, a machine for the distribution of economic advantage, but with its mechanism adapted to the requirements of a more numerous and more highly differentiated order of beneficiaries, a class, moreover, whose numbers were not limited by heredity or by the sheer arbitrary pleasure of a monarch. The process of establishing the merchant state, however, necessarily brought about changes in the general theory of sovereignty. The bold doctrine of Cowell and Filmer was no longer practicable, yet any new theory had to find room for some sort of divine sanction, for the habit of men's minds does not change suddenly, and puritanism's alliance between religious and secular interests was extremely close. One may not quite put it that the merchant enterprises made use of religious fanaticism to pull their chestnuts out of the fire. The religionists had sound and good chestnuts of their own to look after. They had plenty of rabid nonsense to answer for, plenty of sour hypocrisy, plenty of vicious fanaticism. Whenever we think of seventeenth-century British puritanism, we think of Hugh Peters, of, praise God, barebones, of Cromwell's iconoclasts, smashing the mighty big angels in glass. But behind all this untowardness, there was in the religionists a body of sound conscience, soundly and justly outraged. And no doubt, though mixed with an intolerable deal of unscrupulous greed, there was on the part of the merchant enterprises, a sincere persuasion that what was good for business was good for society. Taking Hamden's conscience as representative, one would say that it operated under the limitations set by nature upon the typical sturdy Buckinghamshire squire. The mercantile conscience was likewise ill-informed and likewise set its course with a hard, dogged, provincial stubbornness still the alliance of the two bodies of conscience was not without some measure of respectability no doubt for example Hamden regarded the state-controlled episcopate to some extent objectively as unscriptural in theory and a tool of antichrist in practice and no doubt too the mercantile conscience with the disturbing vision of william lord in view might have found state-managed episcopacy objectionable on other grounds than those of special interest. The merchant state's political rationale had to respond to the pressure of a growing individualism. The spirit of individualism appeared in the latter half of the 16th century, probably as well as such obscure origins can be determined as a by-product of the continental revival of learning, or it may be specifically as a by-product of the reformation in Germany. It was long, however, in gaining force enough to make itself count in shaping political theory. The feudal state could take no account of this spirit. Its stark regime of status was operable only where there was no great multiplicity of diverse economic interests to be accommodated and where the sum of social power remained practically stable. Under the British feudal state, one large holding landed proprietor's interests was much like another's and one bishop's or clergyman's interest was about the same in kind as another's. The interests of the monarchy and court were not greatly diversified, and the sum of social power varied but little from time to time. Hence, an economic class solidarity was easily maintained. Access upward from one class to the other was easily blocked, so easily that very few positive state interventions were necessary to keep people, as we say, in their place, or, as Cranmer's Divines puts it, to keep them going doing their duty in that station of life unto which it had pleased God to call them. Thus the state could accomplish its primary purpose and still afford to remain relatively weak. It could normally, that is, enable a thoroughgoing economic exploitation with relatively little apparatus of legislation or personnel. The merchant state, on the other hand, with its ensuing regime of contract, had to meet the problem set by a rapid development of social power and a multiplicity of economic interests. Both these tended to foster and stimulate the spirit of individualism. The management of social power made the merchant enterpriser feel that he was quite as much somebody as anybody, and that the general order of interest which he represented and in particular his own special fraction of that interest, was to be regarded as most respectable, which hitherto it had not been. In short, he had a full sense of himself as an individual, which on these grounds he could of course justify beyond peradventure. The aristocratic disparagement of his pursuits, and the consequent stigma of inferiority which had been so long fixed upon the base mechanical, exacerbated this sense and rendered it at its best assertive, and at its worst disposed to exaggerate the characteristic defects of his class as well as its excellences and lump them off together in a new category of social virtues, its hardness, ruthlessness, ignorance and vulgarity at par with its commercial integrity, its shrewdness, diligence and thrift. Thus the fully developed composite type of merchant-enterpriser financier might be said to run all the psychological gradations between the brothers Cheeryby at one end of the scale and Mr. Gregrind, Sir Gorgias Midas and Mr. Bottles at the other. This individualism fostered the formulation of certain doctrines which, in one shape or another, found their way into the official political philosophy of the merchant state. Foremost amongst these were the two which the Declaration of Independence lays down as fundamental, the doctrine of natural rights and the doctrine of popular sovereignty. In a generation which had exchanged the authority of a pope for the authority of a book, or rather the authority of unlimited private interpretation of a book, there was no difficulty about finding ample scriptural sanction for both these doctrines. The interpretation of the Bible, like the judicial interpretation of a constitution, is merely a process by which, as a contemporary of Bishop Butler said, anything may be made to mean anything. And in the absence of a coercive authority, papal, conciliar, or judicial, any given interpretation finds only such acceptance as may, for whatever reason, be accorded it. Thus, the episode of Eden, the parable of the talents, the apostolic injunction against being slothful in business, were a warrant for the Puritan doctrine of work. They brought the sanction of economic interest into complete agreement, uniting the religionist and the merchant enterpriser in the bond of a common intention. Thus again, the view of man as made in the image of God made only a little lower than the angels, the subject of so august a transaction as the atonement quite corroborated the political doctrine of his endowment by his creator with certain rights unalienable by church or state. While the merchant enterpriser might hold with Mr. Jefferson that the truth of this political doctrine is self-evident, its scriptural support was yet of great value as carrying an implication of human nature's dignity which braced his more or less diffident and self-conscious individualism. And the doctrine that so dignified him might easily be conceived of as dignifying his pursuits. Indeed, the Bible's endorsement of the doctrine of labor and the doctrine of natural rights was really his charter for rehabilitating trade against the disparagement that the regime of status had put upon it and for investing it with the most brilliant luster of respectability. In the same way, the doctrine of popular sovereignty could be mounted on impregnable scriptural ground. Civil society was an association of true believers functioning for common secular purposes and its right of self-government with respect to these purposes was God-given. If on the religious side all believers were priests, then on the secular side they were all sovereigns. The notion of an intervening divino monarch was as repugnant to scripture as that of an intervening Divino pope. Witness the Israelite commonwealth upon which monarchy was visited as explicitly a punishment for sin. Civil legislation was supposed to interpret and particularize the laws of God as revealed in the Bible, and its administrators were responsible to the congregation in both its religious and secular capacities. Where the revealed law was silent, legislation was to be guided by its general spirit as best this might be determined. These principles obviously left open a considerable area of choice but hypothetically the range of civil liberty and the range of religious liberty had a common boundary. This religious sanction of popular sovereignty was agreeable to the merchant enterpriser. It fell in with his individualism, enhancing considerably his sense of personal dignity and consequence. He could regard himself as, by birthright, not only a free citizen of a heavenly commonwealth, but also a free elector in an earthly commonwealth, fashioned, as nearly it might be, after the heavenly pattern. The range of liberty permitted him in both qualities was satisfactory. He could summon warrant of scripture to cover his undertakings both here and hereafter. As far as this present world's concerns went, his doctrine of labor was scriptural. His doctrine of master and servant was scriptural. Even bond service, even chattel service was scriptural his doctrine of a wage economy, of money lending, again the parable of the talents, both were scriptural. What especially recommended the doctrine of popular sovereignty to him on its secular side, however, was the immense leverage it gave him for ousting the regime of status to make way for the regime of contract. In a word, for displacing the feudal state and bringing in the merchant state. But interesting as these two doctrines were, their actual application was a matter of great difficulty. On the religious side, the doctrine of natural rights had to take account of the unorthodox. Theoretically, it was easy to dispose of them. The separatists, for example, such as those who manned the Mayflower, had lost their natural rights in the fall of Adam and had never made use of the means appointed to reclaim them. This was all very well, but the logical extension of this principle into actual practice was a rather grave affair. There were a good many dissenters, all told, and they were articulate on the matter of natural rights, which made trouble. So that when all was said and done, the doctrine came out considerably compromised. Then, in respect to popular sovereignty, there were the Presbyterians. Calvinism was monocratic to the core. In fact, Presbyterianism existed side by side with episcopy in the Church of England in the 16th century and was nudged out only very gradually. They were a numerous body, and in point of scripture and history they had a great deal to say for their position. Thus the practical task of organising a spiritual commonwealth had as hard going with the logic of popular sovereignty as it had with the logic of natural rights. The task of secular organization was even more troublesome. A society organized in conformity to these two principles is easily conceivable. Such an organization as Payne and the Declaration contemplated, for example, arising out of social agreement and concerning itself only with the maintenance of freedom and security for the individual, but the practical task of effecting such an organization is quite another matter. On general grounds, doubtless, the Puritans would have found this impracticable. If, indeed, the times are ever going to be ripe for anything of the kind, their times were certainly not. The particular ground of difficulty, however, was that the merchant enterpriser did not want that form of social organisation. In fact, one cannot be sure that the Puritan religionists themselves wanted it. The root trouble was, in short, that there was no practicable way to avert a shattering collision between the logic of natural rights and popular sovereignty and the economic law that man tends always to satisfy his needs with the least possible exertion. This law governed the merchant-enterpriser in common with the rest of mankind. He was not for an organization that should do no more than maintain freedom of security, He was for one that should redistribute access to the political means and concern itself with freedom and security only so far as would be consistent with keeping this access open. That is to say, he was thoroughly indisposed to the idea of government. He was quite as strong for the idea of the state as the hierarchy and nobility were. He was not for any essential transformation in the state's character, but merely for a repartition of the economic advantages that the state confers. Thus, the merchant polity amounted to an attempt more or less disingenuous at reconciling matters which in their nature cannot be reconciled. The ideas of natural rights and popular sovereignty were, as we have seen, highly acceptable and highly animating to all the forces allied against the feudal idea. But while these ideas might be easily reconcilable with a system of simple government, such a simple system would not answer the purpose. Only the state system would do that. The problem, therefore, was how to keep these ideas well in the forefront of political theory and at the same time prevent their practical application from undermining the organization of the political means. It was a difficult problem, the best that could be done with it was by making certain structural alterations in the state which would give it the appearance of expressing these ideas without the reality. The most important of these structural changes was that of bringing in the so-called representative or parliamentary system which Puritanism introduced into the modern world and which has received a great deal of praise as an advance towards democracy. This praise, however, is exaggerated. The change was one of form only, and its bearing on democracy has been inconsiderable. 2. The migration of Englishmen to America merely transferred this problem into another setting. The discussion of political theory went on vigorously, but the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty came out in practice about where they had come out in England. Here again, a great deal has been made of the democratic spirit and temper of the migrants, especially in the case of the separatists who landed at Plymouth, but the facts do not bear it out, except with regard to the decentralizing Congregationalist principle of church order. This principle of lodging final authority in the smallest unit rather than the largest, in the local congregation rather than in a synod or general council, was democratic, and its thoroughgoing application in a scheme of church order would represent some actual advance towards democracy and give some recognition to the general philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty. The Plymouth settlers did something with this principle, actually applying it in the matter of church order, and for this they deserve credit. Applying it in the matter of civil order, however, was another affair, it is true that the Plymouth colonists probably contemplated something of the kind, and that for a time they practiced a sort of primitive communism. They drew up an agreement on shipboard, which may be taken at its face value as evidence of their democratic disposition, though it was not in any sense a frame of government like pens, or of any constitutional document. Those who speak of it as our first written constitution are considerably in advance of their text, for it was merely an agreement to make a constitution or frame of government when the settlers would have come to land and looked the situation over. One sees that it could hardly have been more than this. Indeed, that the proposed constitution itself could be no more than provisional, when it is remembered that these migrants were not their own men. They did not sail on their own, nor were they headed for any unpreempted territory on which they might establish a squatter sovereignty and set up any kind of civil order they saw fit. They were headed for Virginia, to settle in the jurisdiction of a company of English merchant enterprises, now growing shaky and soon to be superseded by the royal authority, and its territory converted into a royal province. It was only by misreckonings and the accidents of navigation that, most unfortunately for the prospects of the colony, the settlers landed on the stern and rock-bound coast of Plymouth. These settlers were, in most respects, probably as good as the best who ever found their way to America. They were bred of what passed in England as the lower orders, sober, hard-working, and capable, and their residence under continental institutions in Holland had given them a fund of politico-religious ideas and habits of thought which set them considerably apart from the rest of their countrymen. There is, however, no more than antiquarian interest in determining how far they were actually possessed by those ideas. They may have contemplated a system of complete religious and civil democracy, or they may not. They may have found their communist practices agreeable to their notion of a sound and just social order, or they may not. The point is that while apparently they may be free enough to found a church order as democratic as they chose, they were by no means free to found a civil democracy or anything remotely resembling one because they were in bondage to the will of an English trading company. Even their religious freedom was permissive, The London Company simply cared nothing about that. The same considerations governed their communist practices. Whether or not these practices suited their ideas, they were obliged to adopt them. Their agreement with the London Merchant Enterprises bound them, in return for transportation and outfit, to seven years' service, during which time they should work on a system of common land tillage, store their produce in a common warehouse and draw their maintenance from these common stores. Thus, whether or not they were communists in principle, their actual practice of communism was by prescription. The fundamental fact to be observed in any survey of the American state's initial development is the one whose importance was first remarked, I believe, by Mr. Beard, that the trading company, the Commercial Corporation for Colonization, was actually an autonomous state. Like a state, says Mr. Beard, it had a constitution, a charter, issued by the Crown. Like the state, it had a territorial basis, a grant of land, often greater in area than a score of European principalities. It could make assessments, coin money, regulate trade, dispose of corporate property, collect taxes, manage a treasury, and provide for defence. Thus and here is the important observation, so important I venture to italicize it, every essential element long afterward found in the government of the American state appeared in the chartered corporation that started English civilization in America. Generally speaking, the system of civil order established in America was the state system of the mother countries operating over a considerable body of water. The only thing that distinguished it was that the exploited and dependent class was situated at an unusual distance from the owning and exploiting class. The headquarters of the autonomous state were on one side of the Atlantic and its subjects on the other. This separation gave rise to administrative difficulties of one kind and another, and to obviate the, perhaps for obvious reasons as well, one English company, the Massachusetts Bay Company moved over bodily in 1630, bringing their charter and most of their stockholders with them, thus settling up an actual autonomous state in America. The thing to be observed about this is that the merchant state was set up complete in New England long before it was set up in Old England. Most of the English immigrants to Massachusetts came over between 1630 and 1640 and in this period the English merchant state was only at the beginning of its hardest struggles for supremacy. James I died in 1625, and his successor Charles I continued his absolutist regime. From 1629, the year in which the Bay Company was chartered, to 1640, when the long parliament was called, he ruled without a parliament, effectively suppressing what few vestiges of liberty had survived the Tudor and Jacobean tyrannies and during these eleven years, the prospects of the English merchant state were at their lowest. It still had to face the distractions of the Civil War, the retarding anomalies of the Commonwealth, the restoration, and the recurrence of tyrannical absolutism under James II, before it succeeded in establishing itself firmly through the Revolution of 1688. On the other hand, the leaders of the Bay Colony were free from the first to establish a state policy of their own devising, and to set up a state structure which should express that policy without compromise. There was no competing policy to extinguish, no rival structure to refashion. Thus the merchant state came into being in a clear field a full half-century before it attained supremacy in England competition of any kind, or the possibility of competition it has never had. A point of greatest importance to remember is that the merchant state is the only form of state that ever existed in America, whether under the rule of a trading company or a provincial governor or a Republican representative legislature, Americans have never known any other form of the state. In this respect, the Massachusetts Bay Colony is differentiated only as being the first autonomous state ever established in America and as furnishing the most complete and convenient example for purposes of study. In principle, it was not differentiated. The state in New England, Virginia... Maryland, the Jerseys, New York, Connecticut, everywhere, was purely a class state, with control of the political means reposing in the hands of what we now style, in a general way, the businessman. In the eleven years of Charles's tyrannical absolutism, English immigrants came over to join the Bay Colony at a rate of about two thousand a year. No doubt at the outset some of the colonists had the idea of becoming agricultural specialists as in Virginia and of maintaining certain vestiges or rather imitations of semi-feudal social practice such as were possible under that form of industry when operated by a slave economy or a tenant economy. This, however, proved impracticable. The climate and soil of New England were against it. A tenant economy was precarious or for rather than work for a master, the immigrant agriculturalist naturally preferred to push out into unpreempted land and work for himself. In other words, as Turgot, Marx and Hertzker and many others have shown, he could not be exploited until he had been expropriated from the land. The long and hard winters took the profit out of slave labor in agriculture. The Bay colonists experimented with it, however, even attempting to enslave the Indians, which they had found could not be done, for the reasons that I have already noticed. In default of this, the colonists carried out the primitive technique by resorting to extermination, their ruthless ferocity being equalled only by that of the Virginia colonists. They held some slaves and did a great deal of slave trading, but in the main, they became at the outset a race of small-holding farmers, shipbuilders, navigators, maritime enterprises in fish, whales, molasses, rum, and miscellaneous cargoes, and, presently, money-lenders. Their remarkable success in these pursuits is well known. It is worth mention here that in order to account for many of the complications and collisions of interest subsequently ensuing upon the merchant state's fundamental doctrine, that the primary function of government is not to maintain freedom and security, but to help business. 3. One examines the American merchant state in vain for any suggestion of the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty. The company system and the provincial system made no place for it and the one autonomous state was uncompromisingly against it. The Bay Company brought over their charter to serve as the constitution of the new colony and under its provisions the form of the state was that of an uncommonly small and close oligarchy. The right to vote was vested only in shareholding members or freemen of the corporation on the stark state principle laid down many years later by John Jay, that those who own the country should govern the country. At the end of a year, the Bay Colony comprised perhaps about 2,000 persons, and of these, certainly not 20, probably not more than a dozen, had anything whatever to say about its government. This small group constituted itself as a sort of directorate or council, appointing its own executive body, which consisted of a governor, a lieutenant governor, and a half-dozen or more magistrates. These officials had no responsibility to the community at large, but only to the directorate. By the terms of the charter, the directorate was self-perpetuating. It was permitted to fill vacancies and add to its numbers as it saw fit, and in so doing it followed a policy similar to that which was subsequently recommended by Alexander Hamilton of admitting only such well-to-do and influential persons as could be trusted to sustain a solid front against anything savouring of popular sovereignty. Historians have been very properly made a great deal of the influence of Calvinist theology in bracing the strongly anti-democratic attitude of the Bay Company. The story is readable and interesting, often amusing, yet the gist of it is so simple that it can be perceived at once. The company's principle of action was in this respect the one that in like circumstances has for a dozen centuries invariably motivated the state. The Marxian dictum that religion is the opiate of the people is either an ignorant or slovenly confusion of terms which cannot be too strongly reprehended. Religion was never that, nor will it ever be, But organized Christianity, which is by no means the same thing as religion, has been the opiate of the people ever since the beginning of the 4th century, and never has this opiate been employed for political purposes more skillfully than it was by the Massachusetts Bay oligarchy. In the year 311, the Roman Emperor Constantine issued an edict of toleration in favor of organized Christianity, He patronized the new cult heavily, giving it rich presents, and even adopted the labarum as his standard, which was a most distinguished gesture, and cost nothing. The story of the heavenly sign appearing before his crucial battle against Maxentius may quite safely be put down beside that of the apparitions seen before the Battle of the Marne. He never joined the church, however, and the tradition that he was converted to Christianity is open to great doubt. The point of all this is that circumstances had, by that time, made Czech Christianity a considerable figure. It had survived continually and persecution, and had become a social influence which Constantine saw was destined to reach far enough to make it worth courting. The church could be made a most effective tool of the state, and only a very moderate amount of statesmanship was needed to discern the right way of bringing this about. The understanding, undoubtedly tacit, was based on a simple quid pro quo. In exchange for imperial recognition and patronage, and endowments enough to keep up to the requirements of high official respectability, the Church should quit its disagreeable habit of criticising the course of politics, and in particular it should abstain from unfavourable comment on the state's administration of the political means. These are the unvarying terms, again I say undoubtedly tacit, as it is seldom necessary to stipulate against biting the hand by which one is fed, of every understanding that has been struck since Constantine's day between organized Christianity and the state. They were the terms of the understanding struck in the Germanies and in England at the Reformation. The petty German principality had its state church as it had its state theatre, And in England, Henry VIII set up the church in its present status as an arm of the civil service, like the post office. The fundamental understanding in all cases was that the church should not interfere with or disparage the organization of the political means, and in practice it naturally followed that the church would go further, and quite regularly abet this organization to the best of its ability. The merchant state in America came to this understanding with organized Christianity. In the Bay Colony, the church became in 1638 an established subsidiary of the state supported by taxation. It maintained a state creed promulgated in 1647. In some other colonies also, as for example in Virginia, the church was a branch of the state service, and where it was not actually established as such, the same understanding was reached by other means, quite as satisfactory. Indeed, the merchant state, both in England and America, as soon became lukewarm towards the idea of an establishment, perceiving that the same modus vivendi could almost as easily be arrived at under voluntaryism, and that the latter had the advantage of satisfying practically all modes of creedal and ceremonial preference, thus releasing the state from the troublesome and profitless business of interference in disputes over matter of doctrine and church order. Voluntaryism, pure and simple, was set up in Rhode Island by Roger Williams, John Clark and their associates, who were banished from the Bay Colony almost exactly 300 years ago in 1636. This group of exiles is commonly regarded as having founded a society on the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty in respect of both church order and civil order, and as having launched an experiment in democracy. This, however, is an exaggeration. The leaders of the group were undoubtedly in sight of this philosophy, and as far as church order is concerned, their practice was conformable to it on the civil side the most that can be said is that their practice was conformable in so far as they knew how to make it so and one says this much only by a very considerable concession the least that can be said on the other hand is that their practice was for a time greatly in advance of the practice prevailing in other colonies so far in advance that Rhode Island was in great disrepute with its neighbors in Massachusetts and Connecticut, who diligently disseminated the tale of its evil fame throughout the land with the customary exaggerations and embellishments. Nevertheless, through acceptance of the state system of land tenure, the political structure of Rhode Island was a state structure from the outset contemplating as it did the stratification of society into an owning and exploiting class and a propertyless de- dependent class. Williams's theory of the state was that of social compact arrived at among equals, but equality did not exist in Rhode Island. The actual outcome was a pure class state. In the spring of 1638, Williams acquired about 20 square miles of land by gift from two Indian sachems. In addition to some he had bought from them two years before. In October, he formed a proprietary of purchasers who bought twelve thirteenths of the Indian grant. Bicknell, in his History of Rhode Island, cites a letter written by Williams to the deputy governor of the Bay Colony, which says frankly that the plan of this proprietary contemplated the creation of two classes of citizens one consisting of landholding heads of families and the other of young men single persons who were a landless tenantry and as Bicknell said had no voice or vote as to the offices of the community or the laws which they were called upon to obey thus the civil order in Rhode Island was essentially a pure state order as much so as the civil order of the Bay Colony, or any other in America. And in fact, the landed property franchise lasted uncommonly long in Rhode Island, existing there for some time after it had been given up in most other quarters of America. By way of summing up, it is enough to say that nowhere in the American colonial civil order was there ever any trace of a democracy the political structure was always that of the merchant state. Americans have never known any other. Furthermore, the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty was never once exhibited anywhere in American political practice during the colonial period, from the first settlement in 1607 down to the revolution of 1776. Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Nock PART 4 After conquest and confiscation have been effected and the state set up, its first concern is with the land. The state assumes the right of eminent domain over its territorial basis whereby every landholder becomes in theory a tenant of the state. In its capacity as ultimate landlord, the state distributes the land among its beneficiaries on its own terms. A point to be observed in passing is that by the state system of land tenure each original transaction confers two distinct monopolies entirely different in their nature inasmuch as one concerns the right to labour-made property and the other concerns the right to purely law-made property. The one is a monopoly of the use value of land and the other a monopoly of the economic rent of land. The first gives the right to keep other persons from using the land in question or trespassing on it, and the right to exclusive possession of values accruing from the application of labor to it, values, that is, which are produced by exercise of the economic means upon the particular property in question. Monopoly of economic rent, on the other hand, gives the exclusive right to values accruing from the desire of other persons to possess that property, values which take their rise irrespective of any exercise of the economic means on the part of the landholder. Economic rent arises when, for whatever reason, two or more persons compete for the possession of a piece of land, and it increases directly according to the number of persons competing. The whole of Manhattan Island was bought originally by a handful of Hollanders from a handful of Indians for $24 worth of trinkets. The subsequent rise in land values, as we call it, was brought about by the steady influx of population and the consequent high competition for portions of the island's surface, and these ensuing values were monopolized by the holders. They grew to an enormous size, and the holders profited accordingly. The Aster, Wendell, and Trinity Church estates have always served as classical examples for study of the state system of land tenure. Bearing in mind that the state is the organization of the political means, that its primary intention is to enable the economic exploitation of one class by another, we see that it has always acted on the principle already cited that expropriation must precede exploitation. There is no other way to make the political means effective. The first postulate of fundamental economics is that man is a land animal, deriving his subsistence solely from the land his entire wealth is produced by the application of labor and capital to land no form of wealth known to man can be produced in any other way hence if his free access to land be shut off by legal preemption he can apply his capital only with the landowners consent and on the landowners terms in other words it is at this point and at this point only that exploitation becomes practicable therefore the first concern of the state must be invariably as we find it invariably is with its policy of land tenure i state these elementary matters as briefly as i can the reader may easily find a full exposition of them elsewhere i am here concerned only to show why the state system of land tenure came into being and why its maintenance is necessary to the state's existence. If this system were broken up, obviously the reason for the state's existence would disappear, and the state itself would disappear with it. With this in mind, it is interesting to observe that although all our public policies would seem to be in process of exhaustive review, no publicist has anything to say about the state system of land tenure. This is no doubt the best evidence of its importance. Under the feudal state, there was no great amount of traffic in land. When William, for example, set up the Norman state in England after conquest and confiscation in 1066-1076, to his associated banditti, among whom he parcelled out the confiscated territory, did nothing to speak of in the way of developing their holdings, and did not contemplate gain from the increment of rental values. In fact, economic rent hardly existed. Their fellow beneficiaries were not in the market to any great extent, and the dispossessed population did not represent any economic demand. The feudal regime was a regime of status under which landed estates yielded hardly any rental value and only a moderate use value, but carried an enormous insignia value. Land was regarded more as a badge of nobility than an active asset. Its possession marked a man as belonging to the exploiting class, and the size of his holdings seems to have counted for more than the number of his exploitable dependents. The encroachments of the merchant state, however, brought about a change in these circumstances. The importance of rental values were recognized, and speculative trading in land became general. Hence, in a study of the merchant state as it appeared full-blown in America, it is a point of utmost importance to remember that from the time of the first colonial settlement to the present day, America has been regarded as practically limitless field for speculation in rental values. One may say, at a safe venture, that every colonial enterpriser and proprietor after Raleigh's time understood economic rent and the conditions necessary to enhance it. The Swedish, Dutch and British trading companies understood this, Endicott and Winthrop of the autonomous merchant state on the bay understood it. So did Penn and the Calverts. So did the Carolinian proprietors, to whom Charles II granted a lordly belt of territory south of Virginia reaching from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And, as we have seen, Roger Williams and Clark understood it perfectly. Indeed, land speculation may be put down as the first major industry established in colonial America. Professor Sokolsky calls attention to the fact that it was flourishing in the South before the commercial importance of either Negroes or tobacco was recognized. These two staples came fully into their own about 1670, tobacco perhaps a little earlier, but not much. And before that, England and Europe had been well covered by a lively propaganda of southern landholders advertising for settlers. Mr. Sokolsky makes it clear that very few original enterprises in American rental values ever got much profit out of their ventures. This is worth remarking here as enforcing the point that What gives rise to economic rent is the presence of a population engaged in a settled exercise of the economic means, or, as we commonly put it, working for a living, or again, in technical terms, applying labor and capital to natural resources for the production of wealth. It was, no doubt, a very fine dignified thing for Carteret, Berkeley, and their associate nobility to be the owners of a province as large as the Carolinas, But if no population were settled there, producing wealth by exercise of economic means, obviously not a foot of it would bear a pennyworth of rental value, and the proprietor's chance of exercising the political means would therefore be precisely nil. Proprietors who made the most profitable exercise of the political means have been those, or rather speaking strictly the heirs of those, like the Brevoorts, Wendells, Whitney's, Astor's, and Gerlitz, who owned land in an actual or prospective urban center, and held it as an investment, rather than for speculation. The lure of the political means in America, however, gave rise to a state of mind which may be profitably examined. Under the feudal state, living by the political means was enabled only by the accident of birth, or in some special cases by the accident of personal favour. Persons outside these categories of accident had no chance whatever to live otherwise than by the economic means. No matter how much they have wished to exercise the political means, or how greatly they may have envied the privileged few who could exercise it, they were unable to do so. The feudal regime was strictly one of status. Under the merchant state, on the contrary, the political means was open to anyone, irrespective of birth or position, who had the sagacity and the determination necessary to get at it. In this respect, America appeared as a field of unlimited opportunity. The effect of this was to produce a race of people whose master concern was to avail themselves of the opportunity. They had but one spring of action, which was the determination to abandon the economic means as soon as they could and at any sacrifice of conscience or character and live by the political means. From the beginning, this determination has been universal, amounting to monomania. We need not concern ourselves here with the effect upon the general balance of advantage produced by supplanting the feudal state by the merchant state. We may observe only that certain virtues and integrities were bred by the regime of status to which the regime of contract appears to be inimical, even destructive. Vestiges of them persist among peoples who have had a long experience of the regime of status, but in America, which has had no such experience, they do not appear. What the compensations for their absence may be, or whether they may be regarded as adequate, I repeat, need not concern us. We remark only that the simple fact that they have not struck root in the constitution of the American character at large, and apparently cannot do so. 2. It was said at the time, I believe, that the actual causes of the colonial revolution of 1776 would never be known. The causes assigned by our schoolbooks may be dismissed as trivial. The various partisan and propagandist views of that struggle and its origins may be put down as incompetent. Great evidential value may be attached to the long line of adverse commercial legislation laid down by the British state from 1651 onwards, especially to that portion of it which was enacted after the merchant state established itself firmly in England in consequence of the events in 1688. The legislation included the Navigation Acts, the Trade Acts, Acts regulating the colonial currency, the Act of 1752 regulating the process of levy and distress, and the procedures leading up to the establishment of the Board of Trade in 1696. These directly affected the industrial and commercial interests in the colonies, though just how seriously is perhaps an open question. Enough, at any rate, beyond doubt to provoke deep resentment. Over and above these, however, if the reader will put himself back into the ruling passion of the time, he will at once appreciate the import of two matters which have for some reason escaped the attention of historians. The first of these is the attempt of the British state to limit the exercise of the political means in respect of rental values. In 1763, it forbade the colonists to take up lands lying westward of the source of any river flowing through the Atlantic seaboard. The deadline, thus established, ran so as to cut off from preemption about half of Pennsylvania and half of Virginia and everything to the west thereof. This was serious, with the mania for speculation running as high as it did. With the consciousness of opportunity, real or fancied, having become so acute and so general, this ruling affected everybody. One can get some idea of its effect by imagining the state of mind of our people at large if stock gambling had suddenly been outlawed at the beginning of the last great boom in Wall Street a few years ago. For by this time the colonists had begun to be faintly aware of the illimitable resources of the country lying westward. They had learned just enough about them to fire their imagination and their avarice to a white heat. The seaboard had been pretty well taken up, the freeholding farmer had been pushed back farther and farther, population was coming in steadily, the maritime towns were growing. Under these conditions, western lands had become a centre of attraction. Rental values depended on population, the population was bound to expand, and the one general direction in which it could expand was westward, where lay an immense and incalculably rich domain waiting for preemption. What could be more natural than that the colonists should itch to get their hands on this territory and exploit it for themselves alone and on their own terms, without risk of arbitrary interference by the British state? And this of necessity meant political independence. It takes no great stress of imagination to see that anyone in those circumstances would have felt that way, and that colonial resentment against the arbitrary limitation which the Edict of 1763 put upon the political means must therefore have been great. The actual state of land speculation during the colonial period will give a fair idea of the probabilities in the case. Most of it was done on the company system, A number of adventurers would unite, secure a grant of land, survey it, and then sell it off as speedily as they could. Their aim was a quick turnover. They did not, as a rule, contemplate holding land, much less settling it. In short, their ventures were a pure gamble in rental values. Among these pre-revolutionary enterprises was the Ohio Company, formed in 1748 with a grant of half a million acres the Loyal Company, which, like the Ohio Company, was composed of Virginians, the Transylvania, the Vandalia, Scioto, Indiana, Wabash, Illinois, Susquehanna, and others whose holdings were smaller. It is interesting to observe the names of persons concerned in these undertakings. One cannot escape the significance of this connection in view of their attitude towards the revolution, and their subsequent career as statesmen and patriots. For example, aside from his individual ventures, General Washington was a member of the Ohio Company and a prime mover in organizing the Mississippi Company. He also conceived the scheme of the Potomac Company, which was designed to raise the rental value of Western Holdings by affording an outlet for their produce by canal and portage to the Potomac River and thence to the seaboard. This enterprise determined the establishment of the national capital in its present most ineligible situation, for the proposed terminus of the canal was at that point. Washington picked up some lots in the city that bears his name, but in common with other early speculators, he did not make much money out of them. They were appraised at about $20,000 when he died. Patrick Henry was an inveterate and voracious engrosser of land lying beyond the deadline set by the British state. Later he was heavily involved in the affairs of one of the notorious Yazoo companies operating in Georgia. He seems to have been most unscrupulous. His company's holdings in Georgia amounted to more than 10 million acres, were paid for in Georgia scrip, which was much depreciated. Henry bought up all these certificates that he could get his hands on, at ten cents on the dollar, and made a great profit on them by their rise in value when Hamilton put through his measure for having the central government assume the debts they represented. Undoubtedly, it was this trait of unrestrained avarice which earned him the dislike of Mr. Jefferson, who said, rather contemptuously, that he was insatiable in money. Benjamin Franklin's thrifty mind turned cordially to the project of the Vandalia Company and he acted successfully as promoter for it in England in 1766. Timothy Pickering, who was Secretary of State under Washington and John Adams, went on to record in 1796 that all I am now worth was gained in speculations in land. Silas Dean Emissary of the Continental Congress in France was interested in the Illinois and Wabash companies, as was Robert Morris, who managed the revolution's finances, as was also James Wilson, who became a Justice of the Supreme Court and a mighty man in post-revolutionary land-grabbing. Woolcott of Connecticut and Stiles, president of Yale College, held stock in the Susquehanna Company. So did Pelletier-Webster, Ethan Allen and Jonathan Trumbull, the brother Jonathan whose name was a long sobriquet for the typical American and is still sometimes so used. James Duane, the first mayor of New York, carried out some quite considerable speculative undertakings, and however indisposed one may feel towards entertaining the effect, so did the father of the revolution himself, Samuel Adams. A mere common-sense view of the situation would indicate that the British state's interference with the free exercise of the political means was at least as great an incitement to revolution as its interference through the Navigation Acts and the Trade Acts with the free exercise of the economic means. In the nature of things, it would be a greater incitement, both because it affected a more numerous class of persons and because speculation in land values represented much easier money. Allied with this is the second matter which seems to me deserving of notice and which has never been properly reckoned with, as far as I know, in studies of the period. It would seem the most natural thing in the world for the colonists to perceive that independence would not only give freer access to this one mode of the political means, but that it would also open access to other modes which the colonial status made unavailable. The merchant state existed in the royal provinces completely in structure, but not in function. It did not give access to all the modes of economic exploitation. The advantages of a state which should be wholly autonomous in this respect must have been clear to the colonists, and must have moved them strongly towards the project of establishing one. Again, it is purely a common-sense view of the circumstances that leads to this conclusion. The merchant state in England had emerged triumphant from conflict, and the colonists had plenty of chance to see what it could do in the way of distributing the various means of economic exploitation and its methods of doing it. For instance, certain English concerns were in the carrying trade between America and England, for which other English concerns built ships. Americans could compete in both these lines of business. If they did so, the carrying charges would be regulated by the terms of this competition. If not, they would be regulated by monopoly, or, in our historic phrase, they could be set as high as the traffic would bear. English carriers and shipbuilders made common cause, approached the state and asked it to intervene which it did by forbidding the colonists to ship goods on any but English-built and English-operated ships. Since freight charges are a factor in prices, the effect of this intervention was to enable British shipowners to pocket the difference between monopoly rates and competitive rates. To enable them, that is, to exploit the consumer by employing the political means. Similar interventions were made at the instance of cutlers, nail makers, hatters, steel makers etc. These interventions took the form of simple prohibition. Another mode of intervention appeared in the customs duties laid by the British state on foreign sugar and molasses. We all now know pretty well probably that the primary reason for a tariff is that it enables the exploitation of the domestic consumer by a process indistinguishable from sheer robbery. All the reasons regularly assigned are debatable. This one is not. Hence, propagandists and lobbyists never mention it. The colonists were well aware of this reason, and the best evidence that they were aware of it it, is that long before the Union was established, the merchant enterprises and industrialists were ready and waiting to set upon the new formed administration with an organized demand for a tariff it is clear that while in the nature of things the british states interventions upon the economic means would stir up great resentment among the interests directly concerned they would have another effect fully as significant if not more so in causing those interests to look favourably on the idea of political independence. They could hardly have helped seeing the positive as well as the negative advantages that would accrue from setting up a state of their own, which they might bend to their own purposes. It takes no great amount of imagination to reconstruct the vision that appeared before them of a merchant state clothed with the full powers of intervention and discrimination a state which should first and last help business, and which should be administered by persons of actual interest like their own. It is hardly presumable that the colonists generally were not intelligent enough to see this vision, or that they were not resolute enough to risk the chance of realizing it when the time could be made ripe. As it was, the time was ripened almost before it was ready we can discern a distinct line of common purpose uniting the interests of the actual or potential speculator in rental values, uniting the Hancocks, Gores, Otises with the Henrys, lees Walcotts, Trumbles, and leading directly towards the goal of political independence. The main conclusion, however, towards which these observations tend, is that one general frame of mind existed among the colonists with reference to the nature and primary function of the state. This frame of mind was not peculiar to them. They shared it with the beneficiaries of the merchant state in England and with those of the feudal state as far back as the state's history can be traced. Voltaire, surveying the debris of the feudal state, said that in essence the state is a device for taking money out of one set of pockets and putting it in another. The beneficiaries of the feudal state had precisely this view and they bequeathed it unchanged and unmodified to the actual and potential beneficiaries of the merchant state. The colonists regarded the state primarily as an instrument whereby one might help oneself and hurt others. That is to say, first and foremost they regarded it as the organization of the political means. No other view of the state was ever held in colonial America. Romance and poetry were brought to bear on the subject in the customary way. Glamorous myths about it were propagated with the customary intent, but when it all came to all, nowhere in colonial America were actual practical relations with the state ever determined by any other view than this. 3. The charter of the American Revolution was the Declaration of Independence which took its stand on the double theses of unalienable natural rights and popular sovereignty. We have seen that these doctrines were theoretically, or as politicians say, in principle, congenial to the spirit of the English merchant-enterpriser, and we may see that in the nature of things they would be even more agreeable to the spirit of all classes in American society. A thin and scattered population with a whole world before it with a vast territory full of rich resources which anyone might take a hand at preempting and exploiting, would be strongly on the side of natural rights, as the colonists were from the beginning, and political independence would confirm it in that position. These circumstances would stiffen the American merchant-enterpriser, agrarian, forestaller, and industrialist alike in a jealous, uncompromising, and assertive economic individualism. So also with the sister doctrine of popular sovereignty. The colonists had been through a long and vexatious experience of state interventions which limited their use of both the political and economic means. They had also been given plenty of opportunity to see how the interventions had been managed, and how the interested English economic groups which did the managing had profited at their expense. Hence, there was no place in their minds for any political theory that disallowed the right of individual self-expression in politics, as their situation tended to make them natural-born economic individualists, so it also tended to make them natural-born Republicans. Thus, the preamble of the Declaration hit the mark of a cordial unanimity. Its two leading doctrines could easily be interpreted as justifying an unlimited economic pseudo-individualism on the part of the state's beneficiaries and a judicially managed exercise of political self-expression by the electorate. Whether or not this were a more free and easy interpretation than a strict construction of the doctrines will bear, no doubt it was in effect the interpretation quite commonly put upon them. American history abounds in instances where great principles have, in their common application, been narrowed down to the service of very paltry ends. The preamble, nevertheless, did reflect a general state of mind. However incompetent the understanding of its doctrines may have been, and however interested the motives which prompted that understanding, the general spirit of the people was in their favor. There was complete unanimity also in the nature of the new and independent political institution which the Declaration contemplated as within the right of the people to set up. There was a great and memorable dissension about its form, but none about its nature. It should be in essence a mere continuator of the merchant state already existing. There was no idea of setting up government, the purely social institution which should have no other object than, as the Declaration put it, to secure the natural rights of the individual, or as Paine put it, which should contemplate nothing beyond the maintenance of freedom and security, the institution which should make no positive interventions of any kind upon the individual, but should confine itself exclusively to such negative interventions as the maintenance of freedom might indicate. The idea was to perpetuate an institution of another character entirely, the state, the organization of the political means, and this was accordingly done. There is no disparagement implied in this observation, for, all questions of motive aside, nothing else was to be expected. No one knew any other kind of political organization the causes of American complaint were conceived of as due only to interested and culpable maladministration, not to the necessarily antisocial nature of the institution administered. Dissatisfaction was directed against administrators, not against the institution itself. Violent dislike of the form of the institution, the monarchical form, was engendered, but no distrust or suspicion of its nature the character of the state had never been subjected to scrutiny, the cooperation of the zeitgeist was needed for that and it was not yet to be had. One may see here a parallel with the revolutionary movements against the church in the 16th century and indeed with revolutionary movements in general. They are incited by abuses and misfeasances more or less specific and always secondary and are carried on with no idea beyond getting them rectified or avenged usually by the sacrifice of conspicuous scapegoats. The philosophy of the institution that gives play to these malfeasances is never examined and hence they recur promptly under another form or other auspices, or else their place is taken by others which are in character precisely like them. Thus the notorious failure of reforming and revolutionary movements in the long run may as a rule be found due to their incorrigible superficiality. One mind, indeed, came within reaching distance of the fundamentals of the matter, not by employing the historical method, but by a homespun kind of reasoning, aided by a sound and sensitive instinct. The common view of Mr. Jefferson as a doctrinaire believer in the stark principle of states' rights is most incompetent and misleading. He believed in states' rights assuredly, but he went much further. States' rights were only an incident of his general system of political organization. He believed that the ultimate political unit the repository and source of political authority and initiative should be the smallest unit, not the federal unit, state unit or county unit, but the township or as he called it, the ward. The township and the township only should determine the delegation of power upwards to the county, the state and the federal units. His system of extreme decentralization is interesting and perhaps worth a moment's examination because if the idea of the state is ever displaced by the idea of government, it seems probable that the practical expression of this idea would come out very nearly in that form. There is probably no need to say that the consideration of such a displacement involves a long look ahead, and over a field of view that is cluttered with the debris of a most discouraging number, not of nations alone, but of whole civilizations. Nevertheless, it is interesting to remind ourselves that more than 150 years ago one American succeeded in getting below the surface of things, and that he probably to some degree anticipated the judgment of an immeasurably distant future. In February 1816, Mr. Jefferson wrote a letter to Joseph C. Cabell in which he expounded the philosophy behind his system of political organization. What is it, he asks, that has destroyed liberty and the rights of man in every government which has ever existed under the sun, the generalizing and concentrating all powers into one body, no matter whether of the autocrats of Russia or France or of the aristocrats of the Venetian Senate? The secret of freedom will be found in the individual making himself the depository of the powers respecting himself, so far as he is competent to them, and delegating only what is beyond his competence by a synthetical process to higher and higher orders of functionaries so as to trust fewer and fewer powers in proportion as the trustees become more and more oligarchical. This idea rests on accurate observation for we are all aware that not only the wisdom of the ordinary man but also his interest and sentiment have a very short radius of operation they cannot be stretched over an area of much more than a township size. And it is the acme of absurdity to suppose that any man or any body of men can arbitrarily exercise their wisdom, interest, and sentiment over a statewide or nationwide area with any kind of success. Therefore the principle must hold that the larger the area of exercise, the fewer and more clearly defined should be the functions exercised. Moreover, By placing under everybody what his own eye may superintend, there is erected the surest safeguard against usurpation of freedom. Where every man is a sharer in the direction of his ward republic, or of some of the higher ones, and feels that he is a participator in the government of affairs, not merely at an election one day in the year, but every day, he will let the heart be torn out of his body sooner than his power wrested from him by a Caesar or a Bonaparte. No such idea of popular sovereignty, however, appeared in the political organization that was set up in 1789. Far from it. In devising their structure, the American architects followed certain specifications laid down by Harrington, Locke, and Adam Smith which might be regarded as a sort of official digest of politics under the merchant state. Indeed, if one wished to be perhaps a little inurbane in describing them, though not actually unjust, one might say that they are the merchant state's defense mechanism. Harrington laid down the all-important principle that the basis of politics is economic, that power follows property. Since he was arguing against the feudal concept, he laid stress specifically on landed property. He was, of course, too early to perceive the bearings of the state system of land tenure upon industrial exploitation, and neither he nor Locke perceived any natural distinction to be drawn between law-made property and labor-made property. Nor yet did Smith perceive this clearly, though he seems to have had occasional indistinct glimpses of it. According to Harrington's theory of economic determinism, the realization of popular sovereignty is a simple matter. Since political power proceeds from land ownership, a simple diffusion of land ownership is all that is needed to ensure a satisfactory distribution of power. If everybody owns, then everybody rules. If the people hold three parts in four of the territory, Harrington says, It is plain that there can be neither any single person nor nobility able to dispute the government with them. In this case, therefore, except force be interposed, they govern themselves. Locke, writing half a century later, when the revolution of 1688 was over, concerned himself more particularly with the state's positive confiscatory interventions upon other modes of property ownership. These had long been frequent and vexatious, and under the Stuarts they had amounted to unconscionable high womenry. Locke's idea, therefore, was to copper rivet such a doctrine of the sacredness of property as would forever put a stop to this sort of thing. Hence he laid it down that the first business of the state is to maintain the absolute inviolability of general property rights. The state itself might not violate them, because in doing so it would act against its own primary function. Thus, in Locke's view, the rights of property took precedence over those of life and liberty, and if it ever came to the pinch, the state must make its choice accordingly. Thus, while the American architects assented in principle to the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty and found it in a general way highly congenial as a sort of voucher for their self-esteem, their practical interpretation of it left it pretty well hamstrung. They were not especially concerned with consistency. Their practical interest in this philosophy stopped short at the point which we have already noted of its presumptive justification of a ruthless economic pseudo-individualism and an exercise of political self-expression by the general electorate which should be so managed as to be in all essential respects futile. In this they took precise pattern by the English Whig exponents and practitioners of this philosophy. Locke himself whom we have seen putting the natural rights of property so high above those of life and liberty was equally discriminating in his view of popular sovereignty. He was no believer in what he called a numerous democracy and did not contemplate a political organization that should countenance anything of the kind. The sort of organization he had in mind is reflected in the extraordinary constitution he devised for the royal province of Carolina, which established a basic order of politically inarticulate serfdom. Such an organization as this represented was about the best in a practical way that the British merchant state was ever able to do for the doctrine of popular sovereignty. It was also about the best that the American counterpart of the British merchant state could do. The sum of the matter is that while the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty afforded a set of principles upon which all interests could unite, and practically all did unite, with the aim of securing political independence, it did not afford a satisfactory set of principles on which to found the new American state. When political independence was secured, the stark doctrine of the Declaration went into abeyance, with only a distorted simulacrum of its principles surviving. The rights of life and liberty were recognized by a mere constitutional formality left open to eviscerating interpretations, or where there were for any reason deemed superfluous to simple executive disregard, and all consideration of the rights attending the pursuit of happiness was narrowed down to a plenary acceptance of Locke's doctrine of the preeminent rights of property, with law-made property on an equal footing with labour-made property. As for popular sovereignty, the new state had to be republican in form, for no other would suit the general temper of the people, and hence its peculiar task was to preserve the appearance of actual republicanism without the reality. To do this, it took over the apparatus by which we have seen the English merchant state adopting when confronted with a like task, the apparatus of a representative or parliamentary system. Moreover, It improved upon the British model of this apparatus by adding three auxiliary devices which time has proved most effective. These were, first, the device of the fixed term, which regulates the administration of our system by astronomical rather than political considerations, by the motion of the earth around the sun rather than by political exigency. Second, the device of judicial review and interpretation which as we have already observed, is a process whereby anything may be made to mean anything. Third, the device of requiring legislators to reside in the district they represent, which puts the highest conceivable premium upon pliancy and venality, and it therefore the best mechanism for rapidly building up an immense body of patronage. It may be perceived at once that all these devices tend of themselves to work smoothly and harmoniously towards a great centralization of state power and that their working in this direction may be indefinitely accelerated to the utmost economy of effort. As well as one can put a date to such an event, The surrender at Yorktown marks the sudden and complete disappearance of the Declaration's doctrine from the political consciousness of America. Mr. Jefferson resided in Paris as Minister to France from 1784 to 1789. As the time for his return to America drew near, he wrote Colonel Humphreys that he hoped soon to possess myself anew by conversation with my countrymen of their spirit and ideas I know only the Americans of the year 1784. They tell me this is to be much a stranger to those of 1789. So indeed he found it. On arriving in New York and resuming his place in the social life of the country, he was greatly depressed by the discovery that the principles of the Declaration had gone wholly by the board. No one spoke of natural rights and popular sovereignty, it would seem actually that no one had ever heard of them. On the contrary, everyone was talking about the pressing need of a strong central coercive authority able to check the incursions which the democratic spirit was likely to incite upon the men of principle and property. Mr. Jefferson wrote despondently of the contrast of all this with the sort of thing he had been hearing in the France which he had just left, in the first year of her resolution, in the fervor of natural rights and zeal for reformation. In the process of possessing himself anew of the spirit and ideas of his countrymen, he said, I cannot describe the wonder and mortification with which the table conversations filled me. Clearly, though the Declaration might have been the Charter for American Independence, It was in no sense the charter for the new American state. Our Enemy, the State by Albert J. Knock Part 5 It is a commonplace that the persistence of an institution is due solely to the state of mind that prevails towards it, the set of terms in which men habitually think about it so long and only so long as those terms are favourable the institution lives and maintains its power and when for any reason men generally cease to thinking in those terms it weakens and becomes inert. At one time a certain set of terms regarding man's place in nature gave organised Christianity the power largely to control men's consciences and direct their conduct and this power has dwindled to the point of disappearance for no other reason than that men generally stopped thinking in those terms. The persistence of our unstable and iniquitous economic system is not due to the power of accumulated capital, the force of propaganda, or to any force or combination of forces commonly alleged its cause. It is due solely to a certain set of terms in which men think of the opportunity to work. They regard this opportunity as something to be given. Nowhere is there any other idea about it than that the opportunity to apply labor and capital to natural resources for the production of wealth is not in any sense a right, but a concession. This is all that keeps our system alive. When men cease to think in these terms, the system will disappear, and not before. It seems pretty clear that changes in the terms of thought affecting an institution are but little advanced by direct means. They are brought about in obscure and circuitous ways and assisted by trains of circumstance which before the fact would appear quite unrelated and their explosive or solvent action is therefore quite unpredictable. A direct drive at effecting these changes comes as a rule to nothing or more often than not, turns out to be retarding. They are so largely the work of those unimpassioned and importunable agencies for which Prince de Bismarck had such vast respect. He called them the imponderabilia, that any effort which disregards them, or thrusts them violently aside, will in the long run find them stepping in to abort its fruit. That is what we are attempting to do in this rapid survey of the historical progress of certain ideas, is to trace the genesis of an attitude of mind, a set of terms in which now practically everyone thinks of the state, and then to consider the conclusions towards which this psychical phenomenon unmistakably points. Instead of recognizing the state as the common enemy of all well-disposed industrious and decent men, The run of mankind, with rare exceptions, regards it not only as a final and indispensable entity, but also as, in the main, beneficent. The mass man, ignorant of its history, regards its character and intentions as social rather than antisocial, and in that faith he is willing to put at his disposal an indefinite credit of knavery, mendacity, and chicane, upon which its administrators may draw at will. Instead of looking upon the state's progressive absorption of social power with the repugnance and resentment that he would naturally feel towards the activities of a professional criminal organization, he tends rather to encourage and glorify it in the belief that he is somehow identified with the state, and that therefore, in consenting to its indefinite aggrandizement, he consents to something in which he has a share. He is, pro tanto, aggrandizing himself. Professor Ortego Igasset analyzes this state of mind extremely well. The mass man, he says, confronting the phenomenon of the state, sees it, admires it, knows that there it is. Furthermore, the mass man sees in the state an anonymous power, and feeling himself like it, anonymous, he believes that the state is something of his own. Suppose that in the public life of a country some difficulty, conflict or problem presents itself, the mass man will tend to demand that the state intervene immediately and undertake a solution directly with its immense and unassailable resources. When the mass suffers any ill fortune or simply feels some strong appetite, its great temptation is that permanent, sure possibility of obtaining everything without effort, struggle, doubt or risk merely by touching a button and setting the mighty machine in motion. It is the genesis of this attitude, this state of mind, and the conclusions which inexorably follow from its predominance that we are attempting to get at through our present survey. These conclusions may perhaps be briefly forecast here in order that the reader who is for any reason indisposed to entertain them may take warning of them at this point and close the book. The unquestioning, determined, even truculent maintenance of the attitude which Professor Ortega-Egasset so admirably describes is obviously the life and strength of the state. And obviously too it is now so inveterate and so widespread one may freely call it universal that no effort could overcome its inveteracy or modify it and least of all hope to entertain it. This attitude can only be sapped and mined by unaccountable generations of experience in a course marked by recurrent calamity of the most appalling character. When once the predominance of this attitude in any given civilization has become inveterate, as so plainly it has become in the civilization of America, all that can be done is to leave it to work its own way out to its appointed end. The philosophic historian may content himself with pointing out and clearly elucidating its consequences, as Professor Ortega Gasset has done, aware that after this there is no more one can do. The result of this tendency, he says, will be fatal. Spontaneous social action will be broken up over and over again by state intervention. No new seed will be able to fructify. Society will have to live for the state, man for the governmental machine, and as, after all, it is only a machine whose existence and maintenance depend on the vital supports around it, the state, after sucking out the very marrow of society, will be left bloodless, a skeleton, dead with that rusty death of machinery, more gruesome than the death of a living organism. Such was the lamentable fate of ancient civilization. The revolution of 1776 to 1781 converted 13 provinces, practically as they stood, into 13 autonomous political units, completely independent, and they so continued until 1789, formally held together as a sort of league by the Articles of Confederation. For our purposes, the point to be remarked about this eight-year period, 1781 to 1789, is that the administration of the political means was not centralised in the federation, but in the several units of which the federation was composed. The Federal Assembly, or Congress, was hardly more than a deliberative body of delegates appointed by the autonomous units. It had no taxing power and no coercive power. It could not command funds for any enterprise common to the federation, even for war. All it could do was apportion the sum needed in the hope that each unit would meet its quota. There was no coercive federal authority over these matters or over any matters. The sovereignty of each of the 13 federated units was complete. Thus the central body of this loose association of sovereignties had nothing to say about the distribution of the political means. This authority was vested in the several component units Each unit had absolute jurisdiction over its territorial basis and could partition it as it saw fit and could maintain any system of land tenure that it chose to establish. Each unit set up its own trade regulations. Each unit levied its own tariffs, one against another, in behalf of its chosen beneficiaries. Each manufactured its own currency and might manipulate it as it liked for the benefit of such individuals or economic groups as were able to get effective access to the local legislature. Each managed its own system of bounties, concessions, subsidies, franchises and exercised it with a view to whatever private interest its legislature might be influenced to promote. In short, the whole mechanism of the political means was non-national. The federation was not in any sense a state. The state was not one, but 13. Within each unit, therefore, as soon as the war was over, there began at once a general scramble for access to the political means. It must never be forgotten that in each unit society was fluid. This access was available to anyone gifted with the peculiar sagacity and resolution necessary to get at it. Hence, one economic interest after another brought pressure to bear on the local legislatures until the economic hand of every unit was against every other and the hand of every other was against itself. The principle of protection, which, as we have seen, was already well understood, was carried to lengths precisely comparable with those to which it is carried in international commerce today and for the same primary purpose the exploitation, or in plain terms, the robbery, of the domestic consumer. Mr. Beard remarks that the legislature of New York, for example, pressed the principle which governs tariff-making to the point of levying duties on firewood brought in from Connecticut and on cabbages from New Jersey, a fairly close parallel with the octroi that one still encounters at the gates of the French towns. The primary monopoly, fundamental to all others, the monopoly of economic rent, was sought with redoubled eagerness. The territorial basis of each unit now included the vast holdings confiscated from British owners, and the bar erected by the British state's proclamation of 1763 against the appropriation of western lands was now removed. Professor Sokolsky observes dryly that The early landlust with which the colonists inherited from their European forebears was not diminished by the democratic spirit of the revolutionary fathers. Indeed not, land grants were sought as assiduously from local legislatures as they had been in earlier days from the Stuart dynasty and from colonial governors, and the mania of land jobbing ran apace with the mania of land grabbing. Among the men most actively interested in these pursuits were those whom we have already seen identified with them in pre-revolutionary days, such as the two Morrises, Knox, Pickering, James Wilson and Patrick Henry, and with their names appear those of Dewar, Bingham, McKean, Willing, Greenleaf, Nicholson, Aaron Burr, Lowe, Macomb, Wardsworth, Remsen, Constable, Pierpoint and others, which are now less well-remembered there is probably no need to follow out the rather repulsive trail of effort after other modes of the political means. What we have said about the foregoing two modes, tariff and rental value monopoly, is doubtless enough to illustrate satisfactorily the spirit and attitude of mind towards the state during the eight years immediately following the revolution. The whole story of insensate scuffle for state-created economic advantage is not especially animating, nor is it essential to our purposes. Such as it is, it may be read in detail elsewhere. All that interests us is to observe that during the eight years of federation, the principles of government set forth by pain and by the declaration continued in utter abeyance. Not only did the philosophy of natural rights and popular sovereignty remain as completely out of consideration as when Mr. Jefferson first lamented its disappearance, but the idea of government as a social institution based on this philosophy was likewise unconsidered. No one thought of a political organization as instituted to secure these rights by process of purely negative intervention instituted, that is, with no other end in view than the maintenance of freedom and security. The history of the eight-year period of federation shows no trace whatever of any idea of political organization other than the state idea. No one regarded this organization otherwise than as the organization of the political means, an all-powerful engine which should stand permanently ready and available for the irresistible promotion of this or that set of economic interests and the irredeemable disservice of others, according as whichever set, by whatever course of strategy, might succeed in obtaining command of its machinery. 3. It may be repeated that while state power was well centralised under the federation, it was not centralised in the federation, but in the federated unit. For various reasons, some of them plausible, many leading citizens, especially in the more northerly units, found this distribution of power unsatisfactorily. And a considerable compact group of economic interests, which stood to profit by a redistribution, naturally made the most of these reasons. It is quite certain that dissatisfaction with the existing arrangement was not general, for when the redistribution took place in 1789, it was effected with great difficulty and only through a coup d'etat organised by methods which it employed in any other field than that of politics would be put down at once as not only daring, but unscrupulous and dishonourable. The situation, in a word was that American economic interests had fallen into two grand divisions, the special interests in each having made common cause with a view to capturing control of the political means. One division comprised the speculating, industrial, commercial, and creditor interests, with their natural allies of the bar and the bench, the pulpit and the press. The other comprised chiefly the farmers and artisans and the debtor class generally. From the first, These two grand divisions were colliding briskly here and there in the several units, the most serious collision occurring over the terms of the Massachusetts Constitution of 1780. The state in each of the 13 units was a class state, as every state known to history has been, and the work of maneuvering it in its function of enabling the economic exploitation of one class by another went steadily on. General conditions under the Articles of Confederation were pretty good. The people had made a creditable recovery from the dislocations and disturbances due to the Revolution, and there was a very decent prospect that Mr. Jefferson's idea of a political organization which should be national in foreign affairs and non-national in domestic affairs might be found continuously practicable. Some tinkering with the Articles seemed necessary. In fact, it was expected but nothing that would transform or seriously impair the general scheme. The chief trouble was with the Federation's weakness in view of the chance of war and in respect of debts due to foreign creditors. The Articles, however, carried provision for their own amendment and for anything one can see, such amendment as the general scheme made necessary was quite feasible in fact when suggestions of revision arose as they did almost immediately nothing else appears to have been contemplated but the general scheme itself was as a whole objectionable to the interests grouped in the first grand division the grounds of their dissatisfaction are obvious enough when one bears in mind the vast prospect of the continent one need use but little imagination to perceive that the national scheme was by far the more congenial to those interests, because it enabled an ever closer centralization of control over the political means. For instance, leaving aside the advantage of having but one central tariff-making body to chaffer with, instead of twelve, any industrialist could see the great primary advantage of being able to extend his exploiting operations over a nationwide free trade area walled in by a general tariff. The closer the centralization, the larger the exploitable area. Any speculator in land rental values would be quick to see the advantage of bringing this form of opportunity under unified control. Any speculator in depreciated public securities would be strongly for a system that could offer him the use of a political means to bring back their face value. Any shipowner or foreign trader would be quick to see that his bread was buttered on the side of a national state which, if properly approached, might lend him the use of the political means by way of a subsidy, or would be able to back up some profitable but dubious freebooting enterprise with diplomatic representations, or with reprisals. The farmers and the debtor class in general, on the other hand, were not interested in those considerations, but were strongly for letting things stay, for the most part, as they stood. Preponderance in the local legislatures gave them satisfactory control of the political means, which they could and did use to the prejudice of the creditor class, and they did not care to be disturbed in their preponderance. They were agreeable to such modifications as the Articles, as should work out short of this, but not to setting up a national replica of the British merchant state, which they perceived was precisely what the classes grouped in the opposing Grand Division wished to do. These classes aimed at bringing in the British system of economics, politics and judicial control on a nationwide scale, and the interests grouped in the Second Division saw that what this would really come to was a shifting of the incidence of economic exploitation upon themselves. They had an impressive object lesson in the immediate shift that took place in Massachusetts after the adoption of John Adams' local constitution of 1780. They naturally did not care to see this sort of thing put into operation on a nationwide scale, and they therefore looked with extreme disfavor upon any bait put forth for amending the Articles out of existence. When Hamilton, in 1780, objected to the Articles in the form in which they were proposed for adoption, and proposed the calling of a constitutional convention instead, they turned the cold shoulder, as they did again to Washington's letter to the local governors three years later, in which he adverted the need of a strong, coercive central authority. Finally, however, a constitutional convention was assembled on the distinct understanding that it should do no more than revise the Articles in such a way, as Hamilton cleverly phrased it, as to make them adequate to the exigencies of the nation, and on the further understanding that all the 13 units should assent to the amendments before they went into effect, in short, that the method of amendment provided by the Articles themselves should be followed. Neither understanding was fulfilled, the Convention was made up wholly of men representing the economic interests of the first division. The great majority of them, possibly as many as four fifths, were public creditors. One third were land speculators, some were money lenders, one fifth were industrialists, traders, shippers, and many of them were lawyers. They planned and executed a coup d'etat, simply tossing the articles of Confederation into the waste basket and drafting a constitution de novo with the audacious provision that it should go into effect when ratified by 9 units instead of by all 13. Moreover, with like audacity, they proposed that the document should not be submitted either to the Congress or to the local legislators, but that it should go direct to a popular vote. The unscrupulous methods employed in securing ratification need not be dwelt on here, We are not indeed concerned with the moral quality of the proceedings by which the Constitution was brought into being, but only with showing their instrumentality in encouraging a definite general idea of the State and its functions, and a consequent general attitude towards the State. We therefore go on to observe that in order to secure ratification by even the nine necessary units, the document had to conform to certain very exacting and difficult requirements. The political structure which is contemplated had to be Republican in form, yet capable of resisting what Jerry unctuously called the excess of democracy and what Randolph termed its turbulence and follies. The task of the delegates was precisely analogous to that of the earlier architects who had designed the structure of the British merchant state with its system of economics, politics and judicial control. They had to contrive something that would pass muster as showing a good semblance of popular sovereignty without the reality. Madison defined their task explicitly in saying that the Convention's purpose was to secure the public good and private rights against the danger of such a faction i.e. a democratic faction and at the same time preserve the spirit and form of popular government. Under the circumstances, this was a tremendously large order, and the Constitution emerged as it was bound to do as a compromised document, or as Mr. Beard puts it very precisely, a mosaic of second choices, which really satisfied neither of the two opposing sets of interests. It was not strong and definite enough in either direction to please anybody. In particular, The interests composing the first division, led by Alexander Hamilton, saw that it was not sufficient of itself to fix them in anything like a permanent, impregnable position to exploit continuously the groups comprising the second division. To do this, to establish the degree of centralization requisite to their purpose, certain lines of administrative management must be laid down, which, once established, would be permanent. The further task, therefore, in Madison's phrase, was to administration the Constitution into such absolutist modes as would secure economic supremacy by a free use of the political means to the groups which made up the first division. This was accordingly done. For the first ten years of its existence, the Constitution remained in the hands of its makers for administration in the directions most favorable to their interests. For an accurate understanding of the newly erected system's economic tendencies, too much stress cannot be laid on the fact that for these ten critical years, the machinery of economic and political power was mainly directed by the men who had conceived and established it. Washington, who had been chairman of the convention, was elected president. Nearly half the senate was made up of men who had been delegates, and the House of Representatives was largely made up of men who had to do with the drafting or ratifying of the Constitution. Hamilton, Randolph, and Knox, who were active in promoting the document, filled three of the four positions in the Cabinet, and all the federal judgeships, without a single exception, were filled by men who had a hand in the business of drafting or of ratification or both. Of all the legislative measures enacted to implement the new Constitution, the one best calculated to ensure a rapid and steady progress in the centralization of political power was the Judiciary Act of 1789. This measure created a federal Supreme Court of six members, subsequently enlarged to nine, and a federal district court in each state, with its own complete personnel and a complete apparatus for enforcing its decrees the Act established federal oversight of state legislation by the familiar device of interpretation, whereby the Supreme Court might nullify state legislative or judicial action which for any reason it saw fit to regard as unconstitutional. One feature of the Act which, for our purposes, is most noteworthy is that it made the tenure of all these federal judgeships appointive, not elective, and for life, thus marking almost the farthest conceivable departure from the doctrine of popular sovereignty. The first Chief Justice was John Jay, the learned and gentle Jay, as Beveridge calls him in his excellent biography of Marshall. A man of superb integrity, he was far above doing anything whatever in behalf of the accepted principle that est bon ampliari, ampliare jurisdictionem, Ellsworth, who followed him, also did nothing. The succession, however, after Jay had declined a reappointment, then fell to John Marshall, who, in addition to the control established by the Judiciary Act over the State Legislative and Judicial Authority, arbitrarily extended judicial control over both the legislative and executive branches of the Federal Authority, thus effecting as complete and convenient a centralization of power as the various interests, concerned in framing the Constitution could reasonably have contemplated. We may now see from this necessarily brief survey, which anyone may amplify and particularize at his pleasure, what the circumstances were which rooted a certain definite idea of the state still deeper in the general consciousness. The idea was precisely the same in the constitutional period as that which we have seen prevailing in the two periods already examined, the colonial period and the eight-year period following the revolution. Nowhere in the history of the constitutional period do we find the faintest suggestion of the Declaration's doctrine of natural rights and we find its doctrine of popular sovereignty not only continuing in abeyance, but constitutionally stopped from ever reappearing. Nowhere do we find a trace of the Declaration's theory of government. On the contrary, we find it expressly repudiated. The new political mechanism was a faithful replica of the old-established British model, but so far improved and strengthened as to be incomparably more close-working and efficient and hence presenting incomparably more attractive possibilities of capture and control. By consequence, therefore, we find more firmly implanted than ever the same general idea of the state that we have observed as prevailing hitherto, the idea of an organization of the political means, an irresponsible and all-powerful agency standing always ready to be put into use for the service of one set of economic interests as against another. 4. Out of this idea proceeded what we know as the party system of political management, which has been in effect ever since. Our purposes do not require that we examine its history in close detail for evidence that it has been from the beginning a purely bipartisan system, since this is now a matter of fairly common acceptance. In his second term, Mr. Jefferson discovered the tendency towards bipartisanship and was both dismayed and puzzled by it. I have elsewhere remarked his curious inability to understand how the cohesive power of public plunder works straight towards political bipartisanship. In 1823, finding some who called themselves Republicans favoring the Federalist policy of centralization, he spoke of them in a rather bewildered way as pseudo-Republicans but real Federalists but most naturally any Republican who saw a chance of profiting by the political means would retain the name and at the same time resist any tendency within the party to impair the general system which held out such a prospect. In this way bipartisanship arises, party designations become purely nominal, and the stated issues between parties become progressively trivial, and both are more and more openly kept up with no other object than to cover from scrutiny the essential identity of purpose in both parties. Thus the party system at once became in effect an elaborate system of fetishes, which, in order to be made as impressive as possible, were chiefly moulded up around the Constitution and were put on show as constitutional principles. The history of the whole post-constitutional period From 1789 to the present day is an instructive and cynical exhibit of the fate of those fetishes when they encounter the one and only actual principle of party action, the principle of keeping open the channels of access to the political means. When the fetish of strict construction, for example, has collided with this principle, it has invariably gone by the board, the party that maintained it simply changing sides. The Anti-Federalist Party took office in 1800 as the party of strict construction, yet once in office it played ducks and drakes with the Constitution in behalf of the special interests that it represented. The Federalists were nominally for loose construction, yet they fought bitterly every one of the opposing party's loose constructionist measures, the embargo, the protective tariff, and the National Bank. They were the constitutional nationalists of the deepest dye, as we have seen. Yet in their centre and stronghold, New England, they held the threat of secession over the country throughout the period of what they harshly call Mr. Madison's War, the War of 1812, which was in fact a purely imperialist adventure after annexation of Floridian and Canadian territory in behalf of stiffening agrarian control of the political means but when the planting interests of the South made the same threat in 1861, they became fervid nationalists again. Such exhibitions of pure fetishism, always cynical in their transparent candor, make up the history of the party system. Their reductio ad absurdum is now seen as perhaps complete. One cannot see how it could go further, in the attitude of the Democratic Party towards its historical principles of state sovereignty and strict constitution. A fair match for this, however, is found in a speech made the other day to a group of exporting and importing interests by the mayor of New York, always known as a Republican in politics, advocating the hoary democratic doctrine of a low tariff. Throughout our post-constitutional period, There is not on record, as far as I know, a single instance of party adherence to a fixed principle, qua principle, or to a political theory, qua theory. Indeed, the very cartoons on the subject show how widely it has come to be accepted that party platforms, with their cant of issues, are so much sheer quackery, and that campaign promises are merely another name for thimble-rigging. The work-a-day practice of politics has been invariably opportunist or, in other words, invariably conformable to the primary function of the state and it is largely for this reason that the state's service exerts its most powerful attraction upon an extremely low and sharp-set type of individual. The maintenance of this system of fetishes, however, gives great enhancement to the prevailing general view of the state In that view, the state is made to appear as somehow deeply and disinterestedly concerned with great principles of action, and hence, in addition to its prestige as a pseudo-social institution, it takes on the prestige of a kind of moral authority, thus disposing of the last vestige of the doctrine of natural rights by overspreading it heavily with a quicklime of legalism. Whatever is state-sanctioned is right. This double prestige is assiduously inflated by many agencies, by a state-dazzled pulpit, by a meretricious press, by a continuous kaleidoscope display of state pomp, panoply and circumstance, and by all the innumerable devices of electioneering. These last invariably take their stand on the foundation of some imposing principle, as witness the agonized cry now going up here and there in the land for a Return to the Constitution. All this is simply the interested clamors and sophistry, which means no more and no less than it meant when the Constitution was not yet five years old, and Fisher Ames was observing contemptuously that of all the legislative measures and proposals which were on the carpet at the time, he scarce knew one that had not raised this same cry. Not accepting a motion for adjournment. In fact, such popular terms of electioneering appeal are uniformly and notoriously what Jeremy Bentham called imposter terms, and their use invariably marks one thing and one only. It marks a state of apprehension, either fearful or expectant as the case may be, concerning access to the political means. As we are seeing at the moment, once let this access come under the threat of straightening or stoppage, the menaced interests immediately trot out the spavined, glandered hobby of state rights or a return to the Constitution and put it through its galvanic mo- movements. Let the incidents of exploitation show the first sign of shifting, and we hear at once from one source of interested clamours and sophistry that democracy is in danger and that the unparalleled excellences of our civilization have come about solely through a policy of rugged individualism carried out under terms of free competition while from another source we hear that the enormities of laissez-faire have grounded the faces of the poor and obstructed entrance into the more abundant life. The general upshot of all this is that we see politicians of all schools and stripes behaving with the obscene depravity of degenerate children, like the loose-footed gangs that infest the railway yards and purlieus of gas houses. Each group tries to circumvent another with respect to the fruit accruing to acts of public mischief. In other words, we see them behaving in a strictly historical manner. Professor Lasky's Elaborate moral distinction between the state and officialdom is devoid of foundation. The state is not, as he would have it, a social institution administered in an antisocial way. It is an antisocial institution administered in the only way an antisocial institution can be administered and by the kind of person who, in the nature of things, is best adapted to such service. Our Enemy, The State by Albert J. Knock Part 6 Such has been the course of our experience from the beginning, and such are the terms in which its stark uniformity has led us to think of the state. This uniformity also goes far to account for the development of a peculiar moral enervation with regard to the state, exactly parallel to that which prevailed with regard to the church in the Middle Ages. The Church controlled the distribution of certain privileges and immunities, and if one approached it properly, one might get the benefit of them. It stood as something to be run to in any kind of emergency, temporal or spiritual, for the satisfaction of ambition and cupidity, as well as for the more tenuous assurances it held out against various forms of fear, doubt and sorrow. As long as this was so, the anomalies were more or less contentedly acquiesced in, and thus a chronic moral enervation, too negative to be called broadly cynical, was developed towards the vast overbuilding of its material structure. A like enervation pervades our society with respect to the state and for like reasons. It affects especially those who take the state's pretensions at face value and regard it as a social institution whose policies of continuous intervention are wholesome and necessary. And it also affects the great majority who have no clear idea of the state, but merely accept it as something that exists, and never think about it except when some intervention bears unfavorably upon their interests. There is little need to dwell upon the amount of aid thus given to the state's progress in self-aggrandizement, or to show in detail or by illustration the courses by which this spiritlessness promotes the state's steady policy of intervention, exaction, and overbuilding. Every intervention by the state enables another, and this in turn another, and so on indefinitely, and the state stands ever ready and eager to make them often on its own motion, often again wangling plausibility for them through the spacious suggestion of interested persons. Sometimes the matter at issue is in its nature simple, socially necessary, and devoid of any character that would bring it into the purview of politics. For convenience, however, complications are erected on it. Then presently someone sees that these complications are exploitable and proceeds to exploit them then another, and another, until the rivalries and collisions of interest thus generate issue in a more or less general disorder. When this takes place, the logical thing, obviously, is to recede and let the disorder be settled in the slower and more troublesome way through the operation of natural laws. But in such circumstances, recession is never for a moment thought of. The suggestion would be put down as sheer lunacy. Instead, the interests unfavorably affected, little aware perhaps how much worse the cure is than the disease, or at any rate little caring, immediately call on the state to cut in arbitrarily between cause and effect and clear up the disorder out of hand. The state then intervenes by imposing another set of complications upon the first. These in turn are found exploitable. Another demand arises, another set of complications, still more intricate, is erected upon the first two. And the same sequence is gone through again and again until the recurrent disorder becomes acute enough to open the way for a shocking political adventurer to come forward and, always alleging necessity the tyrant's plea to organize a coup d'état. But more often the basic matter at issue represents an original intervention of the state, an original allotment of the political means. Each of these allotments, as we have seen, is a charter of highwaymanry, a license to appropriate the labor products of others without compensation. Therefore, it is in the nature of things that when such a license is issued, the state must follow it up with an indefinite series of interventions to systematize and regulate its use. The state's endless progressive encroachments that are recorded in the history of the tariff, their impudent and disgusting particularity, and the prodigious amount of apparatus necessary to give them effect, furnish a conspicuous case in point. Another is furnished by the history of our railway regulation. It is nowadays of the fashion, even among those who ought to know better, to hold rugged individualism and laissez-faire responsible for the riot of stock-watering, rebates, rate-cutting, fraudulent bankruptcies, and the like, which prevailed in our railway practice after the civil war, but they had no more to do with it than they have with the procession of the equinoxes. The fact is that our railways, with few exceptions, did not grow up in response to any actual economic demand. They were speculative enterprises enabled by State intervention, by allotment of the political means in the form of land grants and subsidies. And of all the eagles alleged against our railway practice, there is not one but what is directly traceable to this primary intervention. So it is with shipping, There was no valid economic demand for adventure in the carrying trade. In fact, every sound economic consideration was dead against it. It was entered upon through state intervention, instigated by shipbuilders and their allied interests, and the mess engendered by their manipulation of the political means is now the ground of demand for further and further coercive intervention. So it is with what, by an unconscionable stretch of language, goes by the name of farming. There are very few troubles so far heard of as normally besetting this form of enterprise but what are directly traceable to the state's primary intervention in establishing a system of land tenure which gives a monopoly right over rental values as well as over use values. As long as that system is in force, one coercive intervention after another is bound to take place in support of it. 2. Thus we see how ignorance and delusion concerning the nature of the state combine with extreme moral debility and myopic self-interest what Ernest Renan so well calls la bassesse de l'homme intresse to enable the steadily accelerated conversion of social power into state power that has gone on from the beginning of our political independence. It is a curious anomaly State power has an unbroken record of inability to do anything efficiently, economically, disinterestedly, or honestly. Yet when the slightest dissatisfaction arises over any exercise of social power, the aid of the agent least qualified to give aid is immediately called for. Does social power mismanage banking practice in this or that special instance? Then let the state, which never has shown itself able to keep its own finances from sinking promptly into the slough of misfeasance, wastefulness and corruption, intervene to supervise or regulate the whole body of banking practice, or even take it over entire. Does social power, in this or that case, bungle the business of railway management? Then let the state, which has bungled every business it has ever undertaken, intervene and put its hand to the business of regulating railway operation. Does social power now and then send out an unseaworthy ship to disaster? Then let the state, which inspected and passed the Morrow Castle, be given a freer swing at controlling the routine of the shipping trade. Does social power here and there exercise a grinding monopoly over the generation and distribution of electric current, then let the state, which allots and maintains monopoly, come in and intervene with a general scheme of price-fixing which works more unforeseen hardships than it heals, or else let it go into direct competition, or, as the collectivists urge, let it take over the monopoly bodily. Ever since society has existed, says Herbert Spencer, this appointment has been preaching, put not your trust in legislation. And yet the trust in legislation seems hardly diminished. But it may be asked where we are to go for relief from misuses of social power, if not to the state. What other recourse have we? Admitting that under our existing mode of political organization we have none, it must still be pointed out that this question rests on the old inveterate misapprehension of the state's nature, presuming that the state is a social institution, whereas it is an anti-social institution. That is to say, the question rests on an absurdity. It is certainly true that the business of government in maintaining freedom and security, and to secure these rights is to make a recourse to justice costless easy and informal but the state on the contrary is primarily concerned with injustice and its primary function is to maintain a regime of injustice hence as we see daily its disposition is to put justice as far out of reach and to make the effort after justice as costly and difficult as it can one may put in a word that While government is by its nature concerned with the administration of justice, the state is by its nature concerned with the administration of law, law which the state itself manufactures for the service of its own primary ends. Therefore an appeal to the state based on the ground of justice is futile in any circumstances for whatever action the state might take in response to it would be conditioned by the state's own paramount interest and would hence be bound to result, as we see such action invariably resulting, in as great injustice as that which it pretends to be correct or as a rule greater. The question thus presumes in short that the state may on occasion be persuaded to act out of character and this is levity. But passing on from this special view of the question and regarding it in a more general way, we see that what it actually amounts to is a plea for arbitrary interference with the order of nature, an arbitrary cutting in to avert the penalty which nature lays on any and every form of error, whether willful or ignorant, voluntary or involuntary, and no attempt at this has ever yet failed to cost more than it came to any contravention of natural law, any tampering with the natural order of things must have its consequences, and the only recourse for escaping them is such as entails worse consequences. Nature wrecks nothing of intentions good or bad. The one thing she will not tolerate is disorder, and she is very particular about getting her full pay for any attempt to create disorder. She gets it sometimes by very indirect methods, often by very roundabout and unforeseen ways but she always gets it. Things and actions are what they are and the consequences of them will be what they will be. Why then should we desire to be deceived? It would seem that our civilization is greatly given to this infantile addiction, greatly given to persuading itself that it can find some means which nature will tolerate whereby we may eat our cake and have it. And it strongly resents the stubborn fact that there is no such means. It will be clear to anyone who takes the trouble to think the matter through, that under a regime of natural order, that is to say under government, which makes no positive interventions whatever on the individual, but only negative interventions on behalf of simple justice, not law, but justice, misuses of social power would be effectively corrected, whereas we know by interminable experience that the state's positive interventions do not correct them. Under a regime of actual individualism, actual free competition, actual laissez-faire, a regime which, as we have seen, cannot possibly coexist with the state, a serious or continuous misuse of social power would be virtually impracticable. I shall not take up space with amplifying these statements because, in the first place, this has already been done by Spencer in his essays entitled The Man Versus the State, and in the second place, because I wish above all things to avoid the appearance of suggesting that a regime such as these statements contemplate is practicable, or that I am ever so covertly encouraging anyone to dwell on the thought of such a regime. Perhaps some eons hence, if the planet remains so long habitable, the benefits accruing to conquest and confiscation may be adjudged over costly. The state may in consequence be superseded by government, the political means suppressed, and the fetishes which give nationalism and patriotism their present execrable character may be broken down. But the remoteness and uncertainty of this prospect makes any thought of it fatuous and any concern with it futile. Some rough measure of its remoteness may perhaps be gained by estimating the growing strength of the forces at work against it. Ignorance and error which the state's prestige steadily deepens are against it. La bassesse de l'homme intresse, steadily pushing its purposes, to greater lengths of turpitude is against it. Moral enervation steadily proceeding to the point of complete insensitiveness is against it. What combination of influences more powerful than this can one imagine, and what can one imagine possible to be done in the face of such a combination? To the sum of these, which may be called spiritual influences, may be added the overweening physical strength of the state, which is ready to be called into action at once against any affront to the state's prestige. Few realize how enormously and how rapidly in recent years the state has everywhere built up its apparatus of armies and police forces. The state has thoroughly learned the lesson laid down by Septimus Severus on his deathbed. Stick together, he said to his successors, Pay the soldiers and don't worry about anything else. It is now known to every intelligent person that there can be no such thing as a revolution as long as this advice is followed. In fact, there has been no revolution in the modern world since 1848. Every so-called revolution has been merely a coup d'etat. All talk of the possibility of a revolution in America is in part perhaps ignorant, but mostly dishonest. It is merely the interested clamors and sophistry of persons who have some sort of axe to grind. Even Lenin acknowledged that a revolution is impossible anywhere until the military and police forces become disaffected, and the last place to look for that probably is here. We have all seemed demonstrations of a disarmed populace and local riots carried on with primitive weapons and we have also seen how they ended, as in Homestead Chicago and the mining districts of West Virginia, for example. Coxey's army marched on Washington and it kept off the grass. Taking the sum of the state's physical strength with the force of powerful spiritual influences behind it One asks again, what can be done against the state's progress in self-aggrandizement? Simply nothing. So far from encouraging any hopeful contemplation of the unattainable, the student of civilized man will offer no conclusion but that nothing can be done. He can regard the course of civilization only as he would regard the course of a man in an arrowboat on the lower reaches of the Niagara as an instance of nature's unconquerable intolerance of disorder and in the end an example of the penalty which she puts upon any attempt at interference with order. Our civilization may at the outset have taken its chances with the current of statism either ignorantly or deliberately it makes no difference. Nature cares for nothing whatever about motive or intention she cares only for order and looks to see that her repugnance to disorder shall be vindicated, and that her concern with the regular orderly sequences of things and actions shall be upheld in the outcome. Emerson, in one of his greatest moments of inspiration, personified cause and effect as the Chancellors of God. And invariable experience testifies that the attempt to nullify or divert or in any wise break upon their sequences must have its own reward. Such, says Professor ortega Gasset, was the lamentable fate of ancient civilization. A dozen empires have already finished the course that ours began three centuries ago. The lion and the lizard keep the vestiges that attest their passage upon earth, vestiges of cities which in their day were as proud and as powerful as ours. Tadmor, Persepolis, Luxor, Baalbek, some of them indeed forgotten for thousands of years and brought into memory again only by the excavator, like those of the Myers and those buried in the sands of the Gobi. The sites which now bear Narbonne and Marseille have borne the habitat of four successive civilizations, each of them as St. James says, even as a vapor which appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away the course of all these civilizations was the same. Conquest, confiscation, the erection of the state, then the sequences which we have traced in the course of our own civilization, then the shock of some eruption which the social structure was too far weakened to resist, and from which it was left too disorganized to recover, and then the end. Our pride resents the thought that the great highways of New England will one day lie deep under layers of encroaching vegetation, as the more substantial Roman roads of old England have lain for generations, and that only a group of heavily overgrown hillocks will be left to attract the archaeologist's eye to the hidden debris of our collapsed skyscrapers. Yet it is to just this we know that our civilization will come, And we know it because we know there has never been, never is, and never will be any disorder in nature, because we know that things and actions are what they are, and the consequences of them will be what they will be. But there is no need to dwell lugubriously upon the probable circumstances of a future so far distant. What we and our more nearly immediate descendants shall see is a steady progress in collectivism running off into a military despotism of a severe type, closer centralization, a steadily growing bureaucracy, state power and faith in state power increasing, social power and faith in social power diminishing, the state absorbing a continually larger proportion of the national income, production languishing the state in consequence taking over one essential industry after another, managing them with ever-increasing corruption, inefficiency and prodigality, and finally resorting to a system of forced labor. Then, at some point in this progress, a collision of state interests, at least as general as that which occurred in 1914, will result in an industrial and financial dislocation too severe for the asthenic social structure to bear and from this the state will be left to the rusty death of machinery and the casual anonymous forces of dissolution will be supreme 3 but it may be quite properly asked if we in common with the rest of the western world are gone so far in statism as to make this outcome inevitable What is the use of a book which merely shows that it is inevitable? By its own hypothesis, the book is useless. Upon every evidence it offers, no one's political opinions are likely to be changed by it, no one's practical attitude towards the state will be modified by it, and if they are, according to the book's own premises, what good could they do? Assuredly, I do not expect this book to change anyone's political opinions, for it is not meant to do that. One or two, perhaps, here and there, may be moved to look a little into the subject matter on their own account, and thus, perhaps, their opinions would undergo some slight loosening or some constriction. But this is the very most that would happen. In general, too, I would be the first to acknowledge that no results of the kind which we agree to call practical could accrue to the credit of a book of this order, were it a hundred times as cogent as this one. No results, that is, that would in the least retard the state's progress in self-aggrandizement and thus modify the consequences of the state's course. There are two reasons, however, one general and one social, why the publication of such a book is admissible. The general reason is that when any department of thought a person has or thinks he has a view of the plain intelligible order of things it is proper that he should record that view publicly with no thought whatever of the practical consequences or lack of consequences likely to ensue upon his doing he might indeed be thought bound to do this as a matter of abstract duty not to crusade or propagandize for his view or seek to impose it upon anyone far from that not to concern himself at all with either its acceptance or its disallowance but merely to record it this i say might be thought his duty to a natural truth of things but it is at all events his right it is admissible the special reason has to do with the fact that in every civilization However generally prosaic, however addicted to the short-time point of view on human affairs, there are always certain alien spirits who, while outwardly conforming to the requirements of the civilization around them, still keep a disinterested regard for the plain intelligible law of things, irrespectable of any practical end. They have an intellectual curiosity, sometimes touched with emotion, concerning the august order of nature. They are impressed by the contemplation of it and like to know as much about it as they can, even in circumstances where its operation is ever so manifestly unfavorable to their best hopes and wishes. For these, a work like this, however in the current sense impractical, is not quite useless, and those of them it reaches will be aware that for such as themselves, and such only, it was written the end a printed copy of this book can be purchased or a PDF downloaded from the Ludwig von Mises Institute's website at mises.org by searching for our enemy the state mr. knock included many footnotes in the book and these are only available in the printed editions